I'm Chad Bogleman, and this is the Action Comics Weekly Podcast. Episode 602. Hey everyone, and welcome back for the second episode of the Action Comics Weekly Podcast. A podcast lovingly devoted to the DC Comics series of the same name published from 1988 to 1989. I'm your host, Chad Vokelman, and joining me throughout the life of this show will be a semi-regular cast of rotating guest hosts from across the comics podcasting, blogging, and fan community. Last episode, we kicked things off with a nice intro to myself as well as the concept for the show. This time, well, I don't want to stretch every episode for something to fill the void between the intro and the first segment, but in this case, I do have a few house cleaning type things I want to get taken care of up front. First, the quote, semi-regular cast of rotating guest hosts, unquote. Some podcasters want to keep the facade created by the finished product of their show. Me, I don't mind too much letting you peek behind the curtain. Some of you are, or want to be, podcasters yourself, so letting you know what's happening behind the curtain might actually be helpful in the long run. Anyways, the original plan was to have a few people interested in each character and quote-unquote rotate them out after four to five issues as we went in the series coverage. The problem? A lot of these folks have things called lives. (laughs) Many of them have shows of their own. It's really not fair for me to monopolize their time. Now, some of my co-hosts have expressed interest in covering their character as long as I'll have them. A fact you better believe I'll take advantage of if offered. And others have their own obligations from time to time. So a quick request before I drone on too long. If you're a comics podcaster or blogger with an expertise in or extreme passion for a particular character in this series, please contact me through the Facebook page. I'd definitely like to at least build up a list of potential guest hosts to help shake things up on occasion. That doesn't mean you're not going to hear some of our co-hosts throughout this series that we've had so far again. It just means that I'd like to build up a little bit of a backlog so that if we can, we can give some of these people a break as we go. Now, second and lastly, I'd like to take a more serious tone. This episode of the Action Comics Weekly Podcast is dedicated to the memory of the comics letterer better known as Gaspar. Gaspar lettered the Wild Dog portion of the Action Comics Weekly series for the most part. Gaspar Saldino died at the age of 88 on Thursday, the 4th of August, 2016, just a scant few weeks short of his 89th birthday. We mentioned Gaspar very briefly during the first episode in the creator credits box uh, of the Wild Dog series, but didn't get too far into his credits. I figured, as most of us do, there's time for that later in the podcast. There are only two names in lettering I recognize, Todd Klein and Gaspar. And although I cannot rattle off his list of contributions, which upon further research I can confirm is lengthy... The fact that I recognize the name of a letterer in the first place is a thing of note to me personally. So instead of stumbling to gather some tribute material, I'm going to rely on the words of a couple of individuals better suited to paying tribute to the man than myself. Paul Levitz and the aforementioned Todd Klein. Credit first goes to the Bleeding Cool article by Rich Johnston, from which I'm pulling these quotes. Paul Levitz said, 
my words never looked better than when rendered in the careful calligraphy of Gaspar Saldino. And if I must say farewell to him, I won't do it referring to him by his most frequent but inadequate title of letterer. Gaspar was an artist with design, creating logotypes that have endured an influence, ads that sent us running to the newsstand, and what he did with quote-unquote simple sound effects or words and balloons. His work on Len Wein and Bernie Wrightson's Swamp Thing run established a new level for what lettering could do to add to storytelling in periodical American comics, bringing more drama with his innovative style. I grew up enjoying Gaspar's uncredited work, mostly on Julie Schwartz's titles, and then was delighted to meet the man and have the opportunity to have him render my awkward sketches into a beautiful logo for Adventure Comics, and to have him collaborate by bringing his talent to my comics and newspaper strip run. He was a smiling craftsman, enjoying each challenge or even routine task. I'm sad to hear that he's passed, but I have beautiful examples of his talent hanging on my walls to cherish with my memories. And a while back on his own blog, Todd Klein had this to say. Gaspar was an inspiration to me, especially in his cover lettering and house ad work, which I often studied. In 1985, while on staff at DC, I put together a 54-page Xerox collection of Gaspar's cover lettering as a source for myself and also for the production staff assembling the DC covers, as sometimes we were able to reuse parts of Gaspar's work to save him and us a little time. Now, Todd Klein has often touted Gaspar as his inspiration for lettering, so it seems without the influence of one, I would not know the other. And without the talents of people like Gaspar, the comics we cherish would just be slivers of the top-to-bottom artistic creations that they are. As Paul Levitt said, Letterer is just a title too insignificant for the likes of a talent like Gaspar. He will be sorely missed. But as they say, the show must go on, and I can't think of a better way to continue forward than reviewing some comics. So welcome and enjoy this, the second episode of the Action Comics Weekly Podcast. All right, guys, we are back from break, and of course, because we are kicking off the second issue of Action Comics Weekly, that means we're also talking about the second part of the Green Lantern storyline. And because I'm talking Green Lantern, you know, as you figured out last episode, there's no way I can talk Green Lantern without my co-host from the Lantern cast on board with me, Mark Marble. Welcome back to the show, sir. Long time, no talk, Chad. Yeah, two weeks, two That's weeks. Right. <laughs> All right, so well, before we even get into it, uh, we have to talk about the cover. We obviously didn't talk about the cover last time because it was just sort of a jam piece, generic sort of almost promotional uh, image type cover. Um, uh, but uh, obviously from here on out uh, in the Action Comics Weekly series, we get sort of character-specific covers that sort of rotate and alternate. And this uh, the, the Green Lantern gets uh, gets the first solo cover of the Action Comics Weekly series. Uh, so, what do you think of this cover? I like it. I just, I mean, there's not a lot. I mean, you can't say there's not a lot of detail because actually, in the city, and I, which I assume is supposed to be Coast City, that there are a lot of buildings and a lot of you know, but there's not a lot of color to it. That's the thing that stands out. They're pretty much other than you know the the title action comics weekly and and the green lantern learns the meaning of fear that being all in color the only real color on the picture of the you know the city itself is just of how falling down towards it <laughs> so i think that's pretty cool i just like the, I, I also like the you know the title on the cover about how green lantern learns the meaning of fear which is kind of again cool cuz we're because long before we knew what all these this, I would have all this meaning, we've already had them mentioning what in the first issue they mentioned rage. <laughs> we got the Star Sapphire is about love. 
fear. It's like, hey, the gang's all here, even before there was a gang. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I like it, too. Um, uh, you and I were looking into it before we started recording, uh, because the, the, the interior page of the... Uh, of the Green Lantern story we're, we're being we're going to be covering doesn't tell us. So uh, this cover was actually done by George Perez, both pencils and inks, um, which I found surprising, but not because to me, even though yes, it's I guess technically a black and white cover, other than Hal and the ocean and the title images and stuff like that, I feel like it's maybe an ink heavy. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, especially a, the left hand side, I would say it's pretty, it's very ink, ink area. Yeah, there's, there's a, I mean, there's a lot of detail. It's George freaking Perez, guys. So of course it's going to be, uh, it's going to be, you know, a, a very detailed. Um, but I don't know if it could have stood for more color or less shadow or I don't know what, but it just seems, it just, it's, it's just not. Not what I expect from George Perez, uh, if that makes any sense. So I, I, it, it's definitely enjoyable. It definitely catches your eye. Green, you know, Green Lantern is literally plummeting from the sky, which technically doesn't happen in the story. Um, so that's interesting. Uh, it's it's not my favorite though, for sure. It's definitely not my uh, of the Green Lantern centric covers of the Action Comics Weekly series. It's it's not my favorite. It's not my least favorite, but it's definitely not my favorite. Uh, my favorite comes several issues later with that. Uh, God, I can't remember what the, the title is. Where Green Lantern is standing in silhouette on an asteroid in space. That was pretty cool. There's also that Green Lantern flies free cover where he's. It's like a you're on the street looking up at him flying over you cover. That's also pretty cool. So they're building towards the better covers. That's the way to look at it. <laughs> yeah, that's, 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 that's true. It's, it's, it's not my favorite. It's not the worst. And it could be better It could be better represented, especially by someone of the caliber of George Perez. But at, at the same time, I can't fault it too much because of the detail. Absolutely. I mean, it, it must have taken him an ass load of time to do that much detail on this, this which is essentially basically a background. That's all it is. There's nothing of importance in this background. It could have been any city in any town USA. And we still would have gotten the point that this is Coast City, probably. So there really was no need to put this much detail into it. So kudos to him for putting as much work into it. I just don't know if there was an ink problem or a lack of color that could have made this better. So hmm, That's a good point. So, so they would have been an easier background if you if they had the same cover like drawn after Green Lantern forty six, <laughs> just one big hole in the ground. <laughs> but uh, but I digest. <laughs> <laughs> so when we left last left uh, Hal and company, uh, Carol Ferris had gone batshit insane and uh, or remained batshit insane and just does what she does <laughs> and murdered Cat Matui. Hal had jacked a diamond from a mine uh, <laughs> to pay rent, uh, and uh, that's where we left off, is John Stewart yelling at Hal Jordan and blaming him for the death of Kat Matui. So, why don't you tell people where we're picking up? 
You just did. <laughs> Literally, we're, we're picking, we're just picking up, I mean, right at the moment where we left off because you get the same exact line pretty much with John, like, ripping into Hal's. Like, my wife's dead, she's hacked to pieces, and it's all your fault. We see a little more Cat Matui, so we actually see your face, which really, unfortunately, makes you also wonder how, what's the part of her that's not intact because we've already seen her hand, we see her face, and we see an arm where the hand's still attached, so it makes you wonder. You know, pretty much maybe like everything below that might be cut away because <laughs> they keep re- I mean because they keep playing up the fact that she's hacked to pieces so you kind of you kind of assume it's not hyperbole at this point but uh, I do like the the open the, the way Hal looks on the opening uh, splash page though it's very classic you know Gil Kane Hal mm-hmm. much better than the uh, wonky <laughs> caricature version that you know Carol Ferris was saying so we uh Creative team remains exactly the same. Written by James Owsley, Gil Kane, the, the artist, Alberto, Albert de Guzman, the letterer, Anthony Tallon, the, the colorist, and Denny O'Neill remains the editor. So this issue's title is Requiem. So Hal's like kind of like Hal's in complete shock about this, and he's you know he starts tearing up and everything, and and John kind of starts acting weird. So I mean, we kind of get a possible explanation for this. Because at least Hal, and whether it's Hal's guilt or just Hal's objective assessment coming through, that he thinks maybe Carol's using her star sapphire powers to play with John's mind. Because he's, you know, he, he really rips into Hal's like, that's it, buddy. Take a good look. You know, I don't want you to miss anything. You know, it's like she was a friend to you, but you know, she, you know, she, but look, I mean, she was my wife, and you know, somebody did this just to annoy you, basically just to tick you off. Somebody came here and killed my wife and everything. It's like, uh. Now, now we kind of get a little more clarification about the number of real Green Lanterns that are left. You know, the, at least John kind of goes, you know, there are three Green Lanterns left in the universe. You, Chip, <laughs> oh Chip, and, and Guy, who I run, and Guy who doesn't give squat about anyone but himself, and you, you know, you, you know, you're the, you're the three. And we kind of get a little bit of a flashback in a way to when John walked in and saw Cat Matsui ripped to pieces, and I guess at the time. That that happened, he actually got to see Carol Ferris as she was, you know, she was cutting up, cutting out, and she actually tells John to make sure Hal knew that he was here. She had been here, and that it was basically because of him that I did all this. So it's like, uh, yeah, Hal just, you know, t- you know, Hal just needs to get out of just to get get out of there. He needs to think. He needs to start dealing with Carol, and. John kind of points out, you know, sort of puts a damper on our friendship, doesn't it? And Hal flies off, and he's just thinking how nuts all this is. It's like either John's in shock or Star Sapphire is using her hypnotic abilities to somehow enthrall him. But either way, you know, I've got to get away from this, from Katma before I scream, and I've, and I've got to find Star Sapphire, you know, Star Sapphire fast. Basically, the next big action, or not, it's not an action piece, but the most important thing is, you know, there's a funeral for Cat Matui, and, you know, Arissi is there, John's there, Hal's there. I, I, like, I like the characters that are trying to be incognito, you know? <laughs> like Kilowog with the hat on. No one's going to recognize this big hippo guy with the hat on. Uh, <laughs> Hal's there in, in like, a, an overcoat, but still his Green Lantern uniform. Um... So like I mentioned, Arisia, they're all, you know, they're all, they're all kind of there, and uh, of course, of course, Guy doesn't show up because, you know, Guy, you know, 
receiving points up the fact that you know Hal called Guy and, and Guy just kind of laughed. So this is back in the days when Guy Gardner was you know douchebag one on one, that kind of that version of Guy. John continues to pretty much ignore you know anybody's overtures to try to be uh, any lanterns overtures anyway to try to be nice to him and to comfort him. J- you know John's kind of I mean excuse me Hal's just kind of and, and of course it's raining and there's lightning and that's going on in the background and Hal's just trying to figure out what, what to do because he's been searching for Star Sapphire over and over again, you know, but he's pretty much he's come up empty every time. And then, of course, conveniently enough, guess who's also there, uh, you know, pretty much sitting at a tombstone in the at the uh, cemetery waiting for Hal, it's Star Sapphire. And Hal, you know, Hal and Carol kind of go at it and... You know, Carol, of course, continue, continues her nutty behavior by going, Oh, I came by for a visit the other day, Hal. You were in home, so I left a note. Which is clever, but pretty friggin' sick. <laughs> um, they continue to duke it out. I guess we do get an... This might be the answer to your question, because it does look like Carol can create uh, constructs that don't necessarily look like uh, just made out of sapphire energy, because she kind of creates a, a fighter jet aiming it towards Hal. The fighter jet construct or whatever it is a con is it a real con- is it a real one no it's yeah it's a real it's a real jet oh yeah it is a real one okay so maybe that she, does- she shoots it down she shoots it down okay it's, it's just plummeting towards plummeting towards coast city so it doesn't so i apologize it doesn't answer our question about the constructs <laughs> or maybe it does but in the other opposite direction so hal's kind of go you know hal's trying to knows he pretty much has one shot to try to you know save the you know, save this plane and the pilot from like really doing damage to Coast City. Uh, he saves the pilot. The plane does pretty much crash, but he he, lim- he limits the damage of what's going on here. The emergency crews are, are on their way to deal with the fire, and you know, Carol, you know, the pilot comes running over to Hal. You know, Mister Mister, that crazy broad who shot me down gave me something for you, and it's the Coast City white pages. And the name circled on the top is Carol Ferris. And next issue, Retribution. Yeah, we had asked. Like, uh, yeah, I remember. Yeah, we had asked last time about the, the that construct of how she makes a bulldozer here, but it doesn't seem like a regular bulldozer. It seems like it's colored to be a construct. So that's uh, interesting. I don't know if it's, I think that's. I think she's pushing it. I don't. I think she's pushing it. I don't think she's creating it. I think it's the same thing as the jet, I think. I mm-hmm. could be wrong, but I think because because it's in the cemetery, it could make sense. It was like some kind of de- – because it looks like the, these people are being pushed into an open grave. So that so I would assume the, that a piece of equipment had been used to excavate the areas for the for the graves. Mm-hmm. But, and pl- but you could – I don't know. It's possible, but I don't know why the construct would be yellow. Not not just because of what we know now about their power sets. It just seems like it would be it would be odd. Uh, but it almost it, looks like an orangish pink to me. It might just be an issue with coloring, but eh, it looks orangish yellow to me. But I mean, like, wouldn't wouldn't the treads be gray or something? See what I mean? Yeah, I guess. Uh, I'm just maybe again one of the, maybe it's one of those things as as we see more of her using her powers as this story plays out maybe it becomes a little clearer maybe it won't become clearer but it's it is kind of hard especially in a way because we know what con- their, you know what their constructs look like now to kind of interpret that that's what they you know they were going for the same effect just drawn differently it's it's possible i mean it's it's just it's 
not 100% definitive, I guess. That's about, that's all I, I guess that's what I would have to say. Mm. I don't think, I don't think this issue is as good as the last. No, um, this is, is this the era? This is, this has got to be when Guy is a member of the Justice League Detroit, right? Probably. And Kilowog's got no power, so he's got to be their mechanic. Because Kilowog's stuck on Earth, and when he was stuck on Earth without a ring, he was the mechanic for the Justice League, right? Either, I think it was Justice League Detroit. Might have been Justice League Europe. It sounds familiar. I wasn't reading regularly then, so but it it does it 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 kind of rings a bell. So that's probably that probably is the time frame. Because I because uh, Kilowog is responsible for creating the Rocket Reds. That that's true. So yeah. He, by the way, Kilowog is horribly drunk. Yeah, he uh, looks he looks atro he looks atrocious. Um. Ooh, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, uh, this must be the fastest human on the Earth other than Barry Allen slash Wally West. Because if you look, this pilot bails out of his jet and parachutes down into the city while the jet takes a turn heading the opposite direction, then crashes. So this pilot must have landed several blocks a great deal <laughs> Of distance, not just several blocks, probably a, a couple of miles from where the the, the plane crashed artistically. <laughs> Taxi. <laughs> and then he's, he, it says moments later, and Hal's you know observing the wreckage and knows emergency crews are on the way. And then the pilot comes jogging up, <laughs> no problem. So he still got his helmet on, his jumpsuit. He's carrying this white pages. So. <laughs> I don't know. I think I think you could have shown him bailing out right before it crashed. Uh, but you know, maybe I'm just being nitpicky. <laughs> um, it is it, it is a good good catch though. For a second, I thought the woman standing next to John under the wide brimmed hat was some sort of cat lady, or maybe like Cat Matui's mom or something that somebody brought to the funeral. I, like, I couldn't. I, I didn't know if. Because I guess you can see her hand, yes. but I didn't know if I, you couldn't tell until the third panel or the fourth panel that that was a tissue she was holding in her face. So I thought it was like you know the, the that part of a cat's mouth. You know what I mean? Yeah, in that in that first picture in that first panel where Kilowog is there talking to Arisia, that you could definitely not see that it's supposed to be a tissue. Yeah, I mean you you, you can if you look closer, right? With the context of a later panel, but it, it's. It's not really well executed, and I have to assume it's John's mother. Yes, yeah, I that's that's what I first thought. That's what I thought. That's okay. his first thought. Either way, we know it's a Stewart relative. I think that's pretty safe to say. It's somebody there, come, and because of the gray hair and everything, it's got to be his his mother, his aunt, something like that. Somebody who's there on John's side to come, you know, to comfort him. Yeah. Um. I also, yeah. I, I kind of my other thought about this is. I feel like, and, and we, we talked about it last time, so we know that James Owsley is Christopher Priest. And I feel like Christopher Priest is sort of dragging his feet a little for a page or two because of the recap we get. And it, I don't know about you. Uh, <laughs> I, heads up, listeners, I always share too much about my personal life on the podcast because I have nobody else to talk to. <laughs> so get used to it, people. <laughs> exactly. 
Uh, I've been single now for like five or six years, and I don't know about you, but if I somehow end up finding my wife and she ends up murdered in front of me, and my I and at the time, because John, you know, it's not really Hal's fault, but you know, John needs someone to blame, and he, you know, he's in the throes of great grief. I don't know if I'd spend what's the equivalent of it looks like probably twenty minutes <laughs> going off vaguely about what had happened, and then going. And it was Star Sapphire. I would have grabbed Hal by the neck, thrown him up against the wall. You son of a bitch. Star Sapphire killed my wife because she was looking bitch. for you. <laughs> like, that, but, but, but he, he sits there and is unnecessarily vague. <laughs> like, someone took her life today simply to tick you off. <laughs> and, you know, it's just like... Someone came here looking for you, Hal. Someone had an axe to grind with the Green Lantern Corps. Either way, maybe just you. <laughs> and I also found Star Sapphire. Like for real? Like John Stewart is is you he he's got the he's got the history of being a little explosive. So even though this is, you know, Let's see, he appeared, I want to say, 73, 72, 73, something like that. Maybe, maybe, maybe earlier. Um, so this is roughly 10 years later. So yeah, we're 10 years, we're 10 years, 12, 15, maybe, uh, removed from his first appearance in the whole angry black architect thing. But still, you it, when his wife is murdered... You have an excuse for him to just choke slam Hal if he wants. So I feel like we could have had more actual story in this. Or he could have just been gunning for revenge against Carol. Like, yeah. It's like, I'm going with you, Hal. I don't, I don't care that I don't have a ring. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beat the crap out of her. Because I was reading, and I, uh, I should have kept the website up on my phone before we started recording this. I was reading this article about Action Comics Weekly in general, and it had several several paragraphs in the article, and each, you know, maybe grouping of two or three were devoted to the specific character arcs throughout the whole series, not necessarily spoiling things, but just sort of overall impressions. And one of the things this guy wrote, uh, a guy or girl wrote in this article, is essentially that Kat Matui is is dead for no reason other than to make Jon Stewart a little grumpy. <laughs> And that's the use, the words that this person uses, a little grumpy. And I kind of I kind of see it already. Like, do, the, the murder of Kat Matui accomplishes nothing. Even in this story. Yeah, sure, Hal and, Hal and John aren't speaking with one another. But ha, John was sort of antagonistic, uh, upset, uh, reality checked about Hal in the first issue before his wife was murdered. So like I don't I, I I don't know like I don't I just feel like this uh, I I'm already starting to see this pointlessness of Cat Matui's murder here. No I I yeah it's hard it is hard to argue other other than the fact that they need to make sure they need to keep adding these chips on the on the John Stewart shoulder. <laughs> John you can't be happy and this is why. <laughs> Uh, but it is, but it is possible. Like, and we kind of think we see more of this. Uh, 
as the story plays out, I think there's a of Carol's mind powers, which Hal you know definitively refers to, that maybe maybe John's reaction is a, is somewhat somewhat influenced by Carol's uh, telepathic powers. Maybe. So maybe, but either that or it's just wishful thinking. <laughs> <laughs> um, art wise, because I didn't say much about the art. Yeah, there are some definitive uh, Gil Kane poses in that that opening splash uh, of Hal's quintessential Gil Kane, um, if nothing else. So that's that's pretty cool. I do like uh, the battle in the sky between Hal and and Carol. Kind of appropriate. Uh, it, it's it's appropriate, especially if you take. Let's see. I'm looking at page six. Um, where there's those three panels, and the middle one says, Carol, this is sick, why kill Katma? You see that one? I thought I had... Yes, 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 yes. It was at the okay, top and of then, the page, yeah. Yeah, and then right next to that, you've got Hal flying up, and he's dodging a, a bolt from her. Right. If you take those two images, put them together, and then flip them to where Hal's on the other side and Carol's on the other side, you know what that is? That's the cover of the first appearance of. of oh yeah, 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 Carol. yeah. So, so that's it. It automatic uh, an airborne battle between the classic Star Sapphire and classic Hal Jordan, drawn by Gil Kane over Coast City, reminded me immediately of that cover. So that was cool. Now I don't know if it was intentional, because Gil Kane's got a long history with with them. So maybe it was intentional, maybe not, but I like to think it was. So that's cool. Um, otherwise I don't have much else to say about this. Um, it's interesting that, that, uh, we, we, the, not even, a a passing reference to him going to, uh, South Africa to get that diamond. It's yesterday. It's in here. It's yesterday's news now, man. Yeah. <laughs> he so. got the diamonds. He's got the cash now. It, it's all that matters. <laughs> yeah. So, um, do you have anything else to say about this this uh, this particular? No, I don't think there was as much to really delve into in this issue. I think the first issue was a little more interesting and it, and it was a little more enjoyable, honestly, despite the whole. <laughs> the murder the, thing. The, the, I was I was gonna say the the, the, the whole the whole pre girl the whole pre chick in the refrigerator thing, <laughs> but it's still in the kitchen, so it's kind of not too far removed. <laughs> All right. Well, before we go to break uh, and come back uh, to talk about the next story, uh, where can people find you across the internet? You can find find me and and you to a certain extent. Lanterncast.com. Uh, that's our website. The emails lanterncast at gmail.com. Also on Facebook, Lanterncast is on Facebook. Uh, and I, Mark Marble, I'm also on Facebook. You can download our episodes besides from our website. We're on iTunes and Stitcher. And we have our, Chad does his Green Lantern Green Arrow spinoff. Besides our Lanterncast proper, Jim Ford and I, Jim, the one of the two original co founders of the Lanterncast, we do our pre birth spinoff, which is about how. Jordan's time as the Specter, leading up to you know, paving the way for Rebirth, uh, Green Lantern Rebirth. We have no idea yet, but what, what, what DC Rebirth is it going to be? 
and I, I think that's I think that's pretty much it. All right, guys, we are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, the continuing adventures of Boston Brand, aka Dead Man. My name is Chad Bokelman. For five years, listeners were stuck with a mediocre show. Now we will fulfill our listeners' expectations to use the time and topics left to us and bring down those who are threatening to overtake us. To do this, we must become someone else. We must become something else. Really? What? (laughs) This is your your original attempt? (laughs) Yeah, dude. At a promo? Yeah. I think you're kind of confusing what this show's about, Chad. All right, I got another one. I got another one. All right. Okay, maybe 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 your second attempt will be a little more fresh and original. <clears throat> okay, okay. All right, all right. All right. <clears throat> I'm hoping. <clears throat> my name is Barry Allen, and I'm the fastest man alive. When I was a child, I saw my mother killed by something impossible. My father went to prison for her murder. And wait, what? Wait, wait. what? Okay. Stop, 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 time out. What? <laughs> this is the Lantern cast. We're supposed to be talking about Green Lantern. Not necessarily new material because most people don't like the books these days, but the point still is we're supposed to be talking about Green Lantern. Eh, I guess you're right. And I, I, I guess the old show wasn't really mediocre. I just thought it'd be funny. You did your best, Chad. That, that That's what's so tragic. <laughs> yeah. Well, why don't you tell them what the show really is about? It's about Green Lantern. Oh <laughs> well, yeah. Well, there's well, there's the comics. There's oh, let's run down some things. We've we've done what? We've done commentaries. We've done yes. We we've done movie commentaries. We've done ring our ring cyclopedia stuff, reviewing you know props and rings and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Movie reviews. We do we do stuff like that. Too. Yeah yeah. We've we commented uh, done running commentary on uh, on uh, issues per month. We've done random issue reviews. Uh, Old stuff and new, lots of old stuff recently. Even we've even had interviews, uh, both in the old iteration of the show and the new iteration of the show with me and Mark. So uh, tons of tons of stuff here over at the Lantern Cast for you guys to listen to. It's not just one. We're not a one trick pony over here. Stole my line. I was just gonna say that. No, we have a pretty broad base of topics and things that we do, and we think I think we have a little bit for everybody. So we certainly would appreciate everybody coming to check us out and we think you won't be disappointed yeah we you can find us at lanterncast.com we're also on uh, itunes and stitcher so search for lanterncast and you can find us easily there and if they want to contact us they're more than welcome to do so mark you got that information right you always do <laughs> lanterncast at gmail.com <laughs> lanterncast at gmail.com and we even have a voicemail line guess guess what it's 708 lantern <laughs> awesome and we're on facebook and twitter so Find the Lantern Cast in whatever way suits you best, but definitely give us a listen either on our website, on iTunes, or on Stitcher. We're always here for you guys, and I guess what? Closing line, light the lantern? <laughs> keep, keep, keep the emerald flame burning. All right. Awesome. All right, and we are back from break. Green Lantern has been taken care of for this issue, and now for 602, we are heading on into the Dead Man story. And... Since, of course, we're talking Dead Man, had to bring back fellow blogger Doug Zavisha. How you doing, sir? Doing great, Chad. How you doing, sir? I'm all right. I'm all right. Thanks for coming back. I really appreciate it. Glad to be back. Now, when last we left Dead Man, we started in space. We went to this whole espionage political thing, and then we ended in some sort of ancient Mayan temple. It was it was a whole thing. 
so obviously we pick up right where we left off. But before we do this recap, I wanted to ask you just sort of a general sense. You don't have to give specifics if you don't have them. But can you let the listener know sort of where Dead Man was at this point when Action Comics Weekly started up? Yeah. Where the character was sort of left off? Yep. Yep. At, at this point, uh, and this is prior to 601, what had happened with Dead Man was when he was first created, he was created in the mystery of somebody killed me, I need to find the killer. And there was what seems like decades worth of stories of him searching down his killer. Eventually that led to a four-issue limited series written by Andrew Helfer and drawn by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise his name. And what happens in that four-issue series changes Dead Man forever. It takes everything you knew, uh, closes that book, and then untethers Dead Man to be a whole new character. And so what's happening in Action Comics Weekly is writer Mike Barron is trying to uh, firm up uh, new direction and new adventures for Boston Brand under the guise of Dead Man. And those adventures they kind of waffle a little bit in direction. And as, as you noted, chatted, this one has a little bit of espionage. There's some space stuff. Uh, there's also given what this was late eighties. So there's some Indiana Jones type stuff in that year in a Mayan temple, uh, the ruins of a Mayan temple. And so when this installment opens, Mike Barron as the writer, Dan Jurgens as the penciler, Tony D. Zanuga as the, He's Zuniga. We had that same problem last the, time. Don't worry about the it. Anchor. Steve Haney is the letter, and Liz uh, Barub as, as the colorist are uh, placing Dead Man at the business end of an assault rifle, which is being wielded by a lady named Major Cassaba. So that's where Dead Man is at this point. And where does he continue from here in this particular story? He continues through a very. I'm, I'm noticing as I'm going back through it, discussing it here. The coloring is very orangey. All the backgrounds are oranges and terracottas and oranges for at least two or three pages here. Uh, but what's happening is Dead Man is he he realizes that he can be seen, or that Ma- uh, Major Kasaba sees him. So thinking quickly on his feet, being in a Mayan temple, he says, "Oh no no no! I'm not this person you're seeing in front of you. I'm actually the spirit of Tala Ak, who is the war god of the Mayan people." And so he tries to pass that off, and Kasab is having nothing of it because, as she says, you're not Talak, I am. And they have this discussion back and forth. She's, she doesn't relent on keeping him at gunpoint. Takes a few shots at him, but Dead Man being Dead Man is able to get away. Uh, as that goes on, we discover that uh, Kasaba, who is working for the CIA as a field director on this covert operation, is... Well, they're they're going through the Mayan Temple trying to discover uh, the benefits of the Mayan Temple. There are things here that need to be unearthed. And uh, Tala'ak is set to confront Deadman to the point where Deadman possesses somebody within Kasaba's army. Kasaba is, Kasaba is ready to sacrifice him. And then Deadman comes out and says, wait, wait a minute, let's take care of this does the whole dead man body hopping thing and uh, is able to take Kasaba out. Now at that point we get the most Dan Jurgens ish panel in this story to date. Uh, and actually this panel reminded me very much of wave riders first appearance, or at least the house ads with wave rider. 
in the kind of flaring bolts that Jurgens used for those ads as Talaak leaves Kasaba's body. Uh, and then we find on the final page of this issue, Talaak is ready to do battle with dead men. And there you are. Yeah, it was it was a it was a good story. We obviously we <laughs> we, we 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 did a trade off in tone. Now the first one it was very now as much as it was sort of all over the place. The first one was mostly a political intrigue type story. Now we've done a almost one eighty and are firmly ensconced in a Mayan mythology story. Because there's sacrificing and possessing in the name of gods and, and all kinds of stuff. Right. So it confuses me even further. Now, as you know, a modern day reader, you know, being able to read these all at a clip, not so much. But back then, I can just imagine reading this storyline. And even though it was only a week ago, because I don't, I don't know if you'd necessarily go back and read this story, the, the, the 601 story, before you started reading 602s. Just to remember where you were. Yeah, I don't believe that I did personally. But I can imagine you reading this and going, "Wait, <laughs> I know this is where we left off, but did I did I miss something? Like, I I, I mean, I don't know. It's just the 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 tone sh- the the tone shift is it's it's so hard to put this into words. It's it's subtle, but not right. I mean, it's it, there's there's a tone shift, and you see it, and it it's subtle in the fact that this tone this particular tone was present in the prior storyline but it's so all-encompassing in this next storyline you're like well, what happened to the other stuff right so yep. i just i don't know baron definitely uh changes things up here yeah for sure and, and he leaves in moments where where we're able to see dead man as dead man you know he's got the body leaping where he possesses a, a couple different individuals throughout the story but he then he doesn't lose focus of what he's trying to move forward, which is the the threat of Telaak, the Mayan god here. Um, which you know that that that's all well and good, but then it puts the uh, proposed cliffhanger of Dead Man simply leaping into action against another would-be attacker, and there's really nothing. Over, overwhelmingly appealing to that confrontation that's being built up. Yeah. It's just kind of a ho-hum, good guy, bad guy fight coming up. See you next issue. It would have been better if, if Talaak uh, somehow came out of out of her and instead of like a geared up fight, but went like straight into an uppercut and sent Dead Man flying. Because Some, yeah. the, the prior story, you leave off with Dead Man oh my god, dead man can be seen, it would be a whole lot, you know, more consistent and, and uh, sort of of an equal cliffhanger of, oh my god, dead man can be hurt. Right. So that yeah. would probably would have been better. And here you just get Telaak throwing a pose, and, you know, uh, unfortunately they missed their opportunity to uh, do some cross-merch with <laughs> El Dorado from the Super Friends, but... Uh, they at least give Telok his moment of not quite uh, splash page worthy appearance, but you know if this were if 
if he had made it into a who's who, Rob Shag, looking at you guys, actually Zoom, I guess I'm looking at you. Um, this is probably a similar image that would have been used for Telehawk. Yeah. There are a couple of inconsistent, well, (laughs) two inconsistencies that I noticed. The first, and this one will continue as we go in the storyline and cover future parts of the story, but there's no consistency uh, in when Dead Man can be seen. Uh, She sees sees, uh, him, and then he dives out of the wall, and then he comes back in and hovers behind her again and watches her as she peers over this map. But at this particular point, she doesn't, she can't see him. Right. And then he kind of leaves the top of this pyramid and goes down and follows these, these guards and goes into one of them and nobody can see him down there. She notices him down there while he's inhabiting a body. And then he comes out of that body and people can see dead man when he squares off against Talok. So there's no... Even if you're thinking, okay, so he's only visible when she's around, or he's only visible at the top of the pyramid, there's no consistency between either of those schools of thought. This is true. So it's... Yeah, and at one point it almost seems as though Talok possessing Kasaba can hear his thoughts, you know, in addition to the inconsistency of the appearances. Right. Hmm. So it, it is... It, it, this isn't the... F- first dead man comic you're ever going to want to give to anybody no for sure uh and it's it's really confusing when you get to as far as art is concerned when you get to these guards walking down the pyramid and he says one of the guards is conversing you know like oh you know man did she seem weird and he's like eh she's normal for a section sheet now shut up i hate this climb Meaning that I need to concentrate on where I'm walking because this is a steep and tall-ass pyramid. Yeah. And then you look at some of the art, and there's it's not really that. They especially, especially the, uh, the, the panel where um, the section chief is on her knees and her eyes are glowing. And I thought she had the, the fighting spirit. She's a woman and too weak to fight your trickster. And the, the, the panel underneath that, that perspective shot is way <laughs> off because those... There's no way if this pyramid is anywhere near as tall or steep as it's supposed to be in story that that truck would be that or those people would be that size. And there's only eight steps there. Well, true. I'm not counting the steps. <laughs> this stuff, the, the perspective yeah. shot is is Definitely. way off, and it's yeah. off in other places too. Yeah, I think they could have uh, they could have consulted Murphy Anderson because there were some appearances of Mayan temples in some early Hawkman issues that uh, maybe would have come to play a little better here. And how good, I mean, I, I get that this is Dead Man's story, but since you brought up Hawkman, how good would it have been if you're going to go with the whole ancient mythology, ancient temple kind of route that you bring in a character, not necessarily to co-star alongside Dead Man, but to help Dead Man transition, like Hawkman. You know, Dead Man could somehow recruit some help and be like, you know, this is not my world. I'm not familiar with this. And then somebody like Hawkman could come on, give us some exposition, give us some legitimacy and sort of, you know, comfort with this this direction. And then sort of help pass the torch. Yeah. Yeah, And that's a a duo that actually came to play a little bit later. Uh, Jimmy Palmiotti, Justin Gray's Hawkman issues. They did bring Dead Man into it, and, and, and it makes sense. Yeah. And like you said, it would make sense here. And 
really to a, a point I'm seeing as I'm, I'm going through these action comics weeklies, they're kind of a precursor to what would become the Wednesday comics. Right. Uh, but they're more of a, uh, a warning of what not to do or, uh, maybe even at best kind of a set of guidelines of this worked that didn't. Yeah. And it, and it, I just keep thinking of other ideas that could like forget Hawkman. What about, you know, Vandal Savage, he's a villain. But, you know, he teams up with Deadman for this issue, you know, one of those reluctant team-ups that you get in comics occasionally between a villain and a hero. Um just because, you know, Vandal Savage has been on Earth so long, he knows this mythology he would happen to be in this area when this was happening and and so on and so forth i just i don't know i just feel like there's a way that you could have done this and and sort of changed his direction without taking away his starring role i I, I don't i don't know what i'm trying to say there specifically but yeah it definitely could have been uh could have been stronger yeah for Dead Man, it had Dead Man moments, but they were just moments, and and it very easily could have been a different story altogether. Yeah. As far as the colors were concerned, you were talking about this this first couple of pages. Yeah, it's like somebody took this this through uh, an Instagram filter and and upped the warmth factor on all of this, <laughs> which I get it. I mean, these pyramids, you know, as far as construction is concerned, probably you know terracotta, brick, clay. That type right. of thing, um, and it's happening at night. Um, there's probably a uh, because there's no electricity in this uh, in this building. Uh, although you, if you see when she says you're not Telaak, there's a, a light hanging down from the ceiling. So obviously they've they've rigged uh, an extension cord up to the top and hung it from the ceiling. So there's there's one electric light, and then I'm guessing whatever's powering her radio equipment up at the top. Right, right. So it's sort of dimly lit, helped with the night and the sort of construction material used to build the temple in the first place. So it makes sense, but I, I, I don't know. I feel like Dead Man's suit of as as red it is uh, as it is, it shouldn't be it shouldn't be blending as much to the background. Right. It should be it should more. Pop. Yeah, it should pop a little more than it does. Kind of like on the last page. Yes. Yes. Exactly. For sure. All right, man. Anything else you want to say about this one? No, 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 no. <laughs> Only that we're done with that one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Before we go to break and uh, move on to the wild dog segment, do you want to tell people where they can find you across the net? Yeah, I'm a contributor with Comicosity.com. I'm also the neglecting caretaker of MyGreatestAdventure80.blogspot.com and Tales of My Greatest Strange Adventures. Dot blogspot.com. You give a lot of, you give yourself a hard time on that blog, uh, keeping up with that blog, man. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> they are neglected. I don't post as regularly to the Ragman blog either, so. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, the, the Doom Patrol one. I think there are spots where I'll go seven, eight months bef- between posts. Then I'll come back and I'll do two or three days in a row, and then just fade away again for a little longer. Yeah, that's sort of but my it, sort of how I do it. it it's kind of hard when your character doesn't have anything going on, though. You know, and in the case of Doom Patrol, <laughs> we sure got nothing going on right now. Well, I guess that's true. I did have, I guess I don't have as much of an excuse as you do. Ragman was in the Batwoman series, and you know, it's a, 
it's an indexing type blog, so I've got past stuff I could be covering regularly. I don't know. It's 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 a catch twenty two with bloggers, and and you understand this probably. Uh, but it's you put these work into scanning images and writing a post and doing these things, and then you post it and get like one comment. <laughs> right, right. You're like, well, who's reading this thing? And then, yep. but then you also look at how much you actually post and how frequently you're like, well, it's kind of my own fault. But still, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's 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 a love hate relationship we have with blogging, folks. Indeed. All right, it's, guys. Speaking of uh, blogs and posts and whatnot in Ragman, did you see the Ragman Hero Clicks out of the World's Finest set yet? Is it a new one? Yeah, yeah. No. The World's Finest set, I believe, comes out this week. I'm not a big Hero Clicks player. But they had an unboxing, and I, that's one of the posts I recently put up on Doom Patrol, was the unboxing for uh, World's Finest. And I don't think he came across a ragman in that unboxing, but they're, you know, in trying to find the other Doom Patrollers that are out there, I did trip across the fact that there is a ragman. I did not know that. I'll have to check out, because I know there is a ragman hero clicks. It's like a tower that like a, a, a brick wall or something that he's sort of flying around or i don't oh, know no. something like oh, this one's he's pretty well freestanding yeah i'll have to look into that well thanks for the shout out i'll have to uh get back to blogging i guess <laughs> <laughs> there you go all right guys we're gonna take a quick break and when we come back wild dog doom patrol 1963 doom patrol debut my Greatest Adventure, issue 80. 1964. My Greatest Adventure, renamed Doom Patrol. Issue 85. 1968. Doom Patrol, destroyed. Issue 121. 1976. The new Doom Patrol. Showcase 94. 1987. Doom Patrol, volume 2. Copperberg Lytle. 1989 Morrison and Case Issue 19 1993 Pollack Issue 64 2001 Doom Patrol Volume 3 Arcudi Hewitt 2004 Doom Patrol Volume 4 Burn Shush 2009 Doom Patrol Volume 5 Giffen Clark 2012 2013 2014 2015 2016 Waiting for Doom, the Doom Patrol podcast because we're waiting Available on iTunes, Stitcher Radio and Podbean.com Alright guys, we are back from break and after that uh... (laughs) Cliffhanger, I guess, from Dead Man. Uh, we're back on the scene with something even more exciting. Wild Dog. <laughs> Is it really, though? Is it really more exciting? So he, we, we start off with a, with a heel kick to the face while he's firing off a weapon in his other hand, so... Yeah, that's pretty exciting. <laughs> Super exciting. So, clearly, uh, since we're talking Wild Dog, there's nobody else I could think of to have on the podcast except for Jay Jones. Welcome back, buddy. Thanks. I think <laughs> I really don't want to be. Uh, I really don't want to be remembered as the Wild Dog guy. So, uh, you know, let's Guys, just get through this. Wild Dog expert Jay Jones. Oh Lord. <laughs> Spread it on the internet, folks. <laughs> Hashtag wild dog expert. Yeah, might as well. 
All right, so when we left off last time, we were at uh, essentially a one-and-done type story. Uh, you know, we were talking about how it's like hostage, entry, mop-up, done. Uh, so where does the second story go from here, Jay? It goes uh, off into a completely different direction and uh, introduces another uh, group of uh, crazy people. So <laughs> I guess let's get into it. Go for it. <laughs> All right, Wild Dog, Moral Stand, Chapter 2, Dog Gone, although it probably should be Chapter 1. The last one should have been Chapter 0. Uh, this is, of course, written by the creators of uh, Wild Dog, Max Collins, with penciler Terry Beatty, inked by John Nyberg, uh, lettered by Gaspar, colored by Michelle Wolfman, editor Mike Gold. Uh, okay. We open up with Susan King from Eyewitness News. Uh, talking with her editor about Wild Dog, of course. Um, he's upset with her for blowing an opportunity to unmask Wild Dog, but doesn't seem to realize that old Wildy was in and out of that situation last episode, issue, chapter. Uh, meanwhile, a watchdog group known as the National Legion of Morality holds a conference in Quad City to discuss the growth of pornography that they believe is affecting America's youth. The Legion's spokesman, B. Lyle Lehman, encourages his followers to destroy pornography wherever they may find it in the name of their righteous cause. Uh, later, several like-minded indiv individuals publicly protest the Read World bookstore, a benign business that happens to sell popular adult publications. Uh, Detective Andy Flint attends one of Lehman's meetings and tries to get a bead on the guy. Something about his cause doesn't sit right with him. He drives over to Jack Wheeler's garage to discuss the issue, as well as issues concerning Wild Dog, because Jack Wheeler is Wild Dog. Uh, meanwhile, newscaster Susan King and journalist Lou Goddard cover the Reed World story, and Reed World is bombed. <clears throat> That's the... Uh, that's the uh, bullet points, I'd say, of that story. What would you think of this one in comparison to the, the first one? It was a lot more talky. Mm -hmm. It was a lot less action-y. And um, I am now, now that you have mentioned uh, last episode, the white space, I cannot unsee it. <laughs> yeah, even, even when there's not actual white space, there's just... A lack of creative things done with the background. Yes. In a lot of different panels. I mean, the the splash at the very opening right there is just white background. It's pretty, you know, like you said, it's pretty dynamic. He's kicking the dude while shooting uh, somebody else, but uh, nothing nothing going on in the background. Just completely white space. Yeah. Like they didn't they didn't like for instance when uh, the news reporter shows up on the scene of the uh, protest. Uh, and you see that long shot from across the street of the bookstore, you don't get any brick lines, you don't get any tiles on the roof, mm -hmm. I mean, you don't really get any brick lines of the building behind it, you don't get any sky, you don't get any detail in the street. Uh, in fact, it almost looks like, you know, there's this line on the bottom corner of that panel that looks like it's supposed to be like a curb where the, the news reporter and, and our cameraman are standing on the sidewalk on the opposite side, right. but it just looks like another part of the street. So, like, there's there's a lot of lack of detail in, in some of this. Yeah, very much so. Now, oddly enough, a story 
about a mercenary that, you know, typically the mercenary type character's storyline resolves around action. There's more content in this story with regards to the talkie-talkie and less action. It's actually a better story, in, at least in comparison of a one-to-one with the, the prior issue. Yeah, I'd say that's a, a fair assessment. I mean, uh, there is more. <clears throat> excuse me. There is more uh, more substance to this story. Um, it does appear like it is going somewhere, uh, whereas the last one didn't really feel like it was it was even necessary. Um, yeah. And you know, I do generally like to see superheroes, or I keep calling him a superhero. He's not really a superhero, but. You know, for lack of a better term, I just generally do like to see superheroes in their their downtime and their you know private lives, uh, doing stuff. I like to see old Jack Wheeler under the hood of a car trying to uh, work on it and just being uh, just being a regular guy. But uh, I don't know. I think that this one does suffer from a, a very uh, distinct lack of wild dog. Yeah, I mean that's true. This 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 dude's weird though. The guy that the the, the pornography. The anti-pornography guy. Oh yeah, you mean B. Lyle Lehman? Yeah. Yeah, he is. Uh, he is quite the uh, character. Um, uh, he's he's. I don't know. What, how would you describe him as? A, he's a patriot, I guess. <laughs> I would describe him as a Frederick Wortham. Okay. <laughs> It's, uh, and for those of you unaware, Frederick Wortham is the guy that in the 1940s and 50s, mostly 50s, uh, was the public face of the anti-comic book crusade. Yeah. Uh, the psychologist who said it was tied into ju- juvenile delinquency. Well, I, the reason I make that tie is because this dude is up here screaming about the connection between pornography and the uptick in violent crimes and suicide. He says, you know, I'm reading a word balloon straight here. It says... We have documented statistical proof that smut causes otherwise normal citizens to engage in immoral behavior, child molestation, rape, murder, deviance beyond measure. Okay, And then the very next panel says these words, and even if the proof were not there, we would still be justified because our cause is just. Yeah. (laughs) What? (laughs) You're, You're... Okay, it you know the uptick in the sales of pornography isn't because oh I don't know, it's easier to get a hold of, it's more accepted in the public eye, there's more of it. The uptick in violence isn't because of oh I don't know the accessibility of weapons to the general public or the uptick in mental illnesses or you know whatever you want to throw in there. I'm not making my own gun control argument here on my podcast, guys. I'm just saying in general, you know, it's like it's like. It's like Frederick Wortham making the connection between comic books and juvenile delinquency just because there's an uptick in both. You know, there, I've, I've made this point a long time ago before. There was also an uptick in sales of ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't mean that ice cream caused juvenile delinquency. <laughs> well, I suppose a case could be made. I'm not sure. Um sugar highs. <laughs> yeah. I, I do – yeah, I like uh, – I mean, for for what it's worth, I do kind of like this character. He is he is a, uh, you know, very slimy. Even though he's n- trying so hard not to be, he's like the the pillar of morality. But you know, something about him, he just looks very rapey. He looks very child molestery. He looks uh, he looks like somebody you don't want to hang out with. <clears throat> yeah, for sure. I it just 
that particular panel where he's like, even if the proof were not there, our cause would still be justified. I laughed out loud when I read that because the two the two panels prior to that show him standing on a podium with two big charts of data behind him. Pornography and crime and pornography <laughs> and suicide. That's right. And then he presents like these books on the topic that he's written and stuff like oh, yeah, that. Oh yeah, his his irrefutable data is <laughs> is provided by himself. I have written these books that prove that I am telling the truth. Yeah, I can't read then, the text on these books though uh, in my copy, so I don't know what they yeah. say. But yeah, they're they're a little uh, they're yeah I can't I can't read them myself <laughs> either. But the, it's just funny because our first introduction to this character is uh, is a quick profile shot, and then we get into the story as it transitions. And his first two panels full of dialogue are him relying on factual data and information. All of which he throws out the window in the third panel by saying, and it doesn't, it doesn't matter, matter anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Who listens to somebody like this? Well, uh, there's a handful of people out there listening to him. <laughs> I guess. I mean, uh, you know, people are people are sheep sometimes. Speaking of, this one woman stands up and says, of her own volition, would you suggest we consider civil disobedience? <laughs> <laughs> That's just how many times have I stood up in a in a press conference or you know some sort of seminar and said, "Would you suggest we consider civil disobedience?" I mean, that's that's me to a T. <laughs> Who talks like uh, this? The people of Iowa, man. I guess so. Um, I really uh, like this guy. Also, on the, the next page from that, uh, the dude with the beard. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Reverend Smugworthy. Yeah, Reverend. Yeah, what's going on there? Smugworthy. I feel like Smugworthy should be the name of this dude. <laughs> like they should, like Reverend. It 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 should be Reverend Layman. Reverend Layman and Doctor Smugworthy. <laughs> Doctor, come on, look at the look on this dude's face in like every panel. <laughs> oh, yeah, he is definitely um, full of himself. For sure. Oh man, uh, I just. I also think it's weird that they target this bookstore. Yeah. Like, it, it would be one thing if, like, you know, this bookstore had, like, you know, a bunch of nice books and stuff, and then a room separated by a nice curtain and some beads that said porn on the top. And it was just this whole smut room. But it, I don't get the feeling about that. We never go in – I mean, we, we kind of go into it, but, like, we never really – we never really – see that this bookstore it's never presented in such a way that it's it's one of those types of bookstores right i get the feeling that it's like you know like your 7-eleven that you go into and there's a a a small rack behind the counter of some bagged smut magazines you know and then there's all the rest of the content in in there for you to buy so i don't i don't know why they're targeting this particular bookstore well there is a the the guy um on the street there i guess is he talking to the reporter uh, where she says, what are they protesting anyway? This place doesn't sell hardcore pornography. And the guy's like, well, in their eye, you know, this is hardcore pornography. Vogue, Playboy, Miss Magazine, uh, what is this, Psychology Times maybe? Uh, this is pornography in their eyes. So uh, that's why they're targeting this place because these magazines are horrible pornographic magazines. Um my father once told me when I was a kid uh, that anything, any any literature without any merit is pornography. 
Uh, now, you know, my dad wasn't always right about everything, so I'm not sure uh, where I stand on that. But that's what I believed for a long time because my dad said it. If it's, uh, you know, literature without merit, if it's just, you know, fluff, if it's just like comic books, it's pornography. Um, luckily, I didn't hold on to that opinion for, for too long. <laughs> Uh, or else I wouldn't be here today talking about the wonderful Wild Dog. Uh, yeah, we wouldn't have you as a Wild Dog expert. Right. It's, you know, you don't, just don't it's play the stick. expert part. Yeah. It, it's going to stick, Jay. <laughs> <sighs> um, but, you know, that's that's what they're saying. That, uh, you know, no, they don't, they don't have the, the, beaded, the beaded room. They don't have the, the special uh, stock under the, the counter there. They're saying that this stuff is pornography. And of course, you know, a case could be made for Playboy. Uh, but Vogue... Uh, yeah. When I was twelve, maybe. Hmm. <clears throat> but uh, as an adult, Vogue never would have been considered uh, pornography. <clears throat> Not to me, at least. No. What did you think of uh, of our kind of characterizations of both the Susan, the reporter, and uh, uh, Mr. Flint, Doctor Detective? Is he a detective or d- doctor? Uh, Flint, Lieutenant Flint. Lieutenant. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, because we get we get we get more expansion of both those characters in this story. Yeah, um, I I don't know. <laughs> They're still not super um, dynamic characters to me. Um, I mean, yeah, we do get more information uh, or we learn more about uh, what they're what they're going through, and you know, obviously, we learn in this that Flint and uh, and Jack Wheeler Wild Dog are friends, or at least acquaintances, which we know from reading the miniseries. Of course, uh, not everyone here is reading the miniseries. I mean, yeah, it's it's good. It's good to see more uh, more about these people and learn more about their connections to Wild Dog or or their place in the community. But overall, uh, you know, I think once I read this and put it down, it all went right out of my head again. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't feel like Susan is a reporter of any substance. I mean, we we get this thing, this trope a lot with reporters, you know, and in in relation to the appearance of new uh, heroes, antiheroes, whatever you want to call them. Yeah. And Susan is is yet, you know, a, a, she's a dime a dozen, but she's not a Lois Lane or a, an Iris West. Like she's nobody. Like, and and not to say that. This character was particularly bad because this character worked in the confines of her own universe, but she's kind of an April O'Neil, like from from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, because she mm-hmm. tells these little action stories like, "Come on, Chief, I gotta get to the story," and then she's always got her camera on the the the, the craziness, and you're like, "What? What? Get the hell out of there, April! Like, yeah. <laughs> stop, stop filming the Foot Clan coming at you! <laughs> like, just..." run and let the turtles take care of it and film from a safe distance like jesus yeah and she has she has no she has no like I, I said that you know what do you think of the characterization of these in this story yeah you get more of them but i kind of feel like you learn more about flint than you do about her like you don't learn anything more about her other than she's a story hungry reporter with a really ugly sweater yes um no, not really. I mean, yeah, she's she's a like you said she's a she's a trope. She's a, she's nothing. She's 
completely superfluous to the story. She's, she's not, she doesn't even need to be there. She's just there to videotape the place blowing up at the end, I think. Was she even on the scene for that? Let me go back. No, that happened at night. She wasn't there. <laughs> no, she's completely unnecessary. Uh, and you think you think uh, so? She's she's been sent out. Okay, so he says, um, "What does the editor say?" He says something about. Uh, no, he doesn't particularly send her out on this story. No, she, uh, he he chastises her for blowing it and not getting, uh, you know, not unmasking Wild Dog the last time she was in his presence. And uh, she's trying to convince him that what she did get was the hottest story ever to hit the cities, and he's like, "No, this this." He sends her out to the to the Reed World protest thing, I guess the uh, the um, National League of Morality protesting the bookstore. Yeah, see, the thing is, though, she's not even a good reporter, like. She's she's at she's she's getting some b she's having her cameraman get some b roll of the protest in front of the in front of the bookstore. She sees uh, the Pulitzer Prize winner guy uh, Lou Go- Lou Goddard mm-hmm. over there, and she goes over and talks to him. Doesn't talk to him on camera, anything like that. She is asking him questions about why are they protesting, right? And then he says it's the local chapter and says the head of the national group is speaking tonight. At the Davenport Public Library. Surely you've heard of him. So not only does he give her a place and a time and a big name, but she, I'm looking through this. She is nowhere to be found at this meeting. No, she she would have stood out in that sweater. We yeah, we would have spotted her. She does not. There is go. no follow up. Nope. No follow up by this reporter whatsoever to get the meat to the meat of why they're protesting in the first place. Like what? No wonder you're not unmasking Wild Dog and making impressions on your editor. Like, just I'm not gonna go into a whole my, my whole life story here, guys. But I wanted to be a journalist. <laughs> I I know, and I, I never took any classes or, or did anything with it. I did want to, but it never happened for me. But at least I was passionate about it enough to know how journalism works. Yeah, <laughs> and she's not a good reporter. At all. <laughs> yeah, no, Lois Lane would have followed the story. Yes. Uh, she did not follow the story. She went home and had a snack and went to bed or something. So, yeah, it's not, not a great reporter. Yeah, just because Superman's around doesn't mean Lois Lane only ever covers Superman ever. <laughs> no, she doesn't. Sometimes she, she covers uh, – I can't think of a good joke. Sorry. <laughs> uh that's all right. Uh, Wild Dog in and of itself is a joke. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I kind of think he is. Yeah, I mean, I'm not arguing then. <laughs> all right, anything else about this story you want to talk about? Please, no. There's nothing else I want to talk about, oh, except for one thing. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I think that Reverend Smugworthy and um, not April O'Neil's cameraman might be the same guy. Uh, <laughs> I think he just puts on a toupee and, and is Smugworthy, and he takes the toupee off, and he's the camera guy. So that's that's a that's a commentary on the artwork there. I think the artwork's okay, but it's not great. Yeah, again, there's nothing to write home here. I mean, obviously, the quality in the story picks up at least in terms of giving you something to pay attention to, some sort of semblance of plot. But uh, again, it's still nothing to write home about. Like, especially the the mercenary guy is usually the guy that's like the grizzled 
you know, all about his mission kind of guy. Mm-hmm. And this just seems like, you know, just the 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 jolly guy next door. <laughs> like Jack is not presented in that way at all. Like he just seems like this happy-go-lucky guy that happens to kill people. <laughs> yeah, just happens to kill people. Uh and you know, Flint comes in to his shop and is like wanting to make sure that he's not going to go out there and do any more of his wild dog shenanigans or he'll he'll have him arrested. Um, I don't think that's going to last. And something also about uh, Flint that always bugged me was his his hair. He's always got that crazy, like Phil Hartman, Frankenstein hairdo. Um, It's, it's really unsettling. It's really got bad hair. (laughs) I just grasp at straws now. Uh, I don't. I don't think. I don't think we should be uh, judging the '80s too harshly, bud. <laughs> I had a mullet in the '80s. <laughs> it, it wasn't a time for smart fashion senses all around, no, top to bottom. No. Okay, let's uh, let's give it up on this one then. <laughs> all right. Well, before I let you go, let's go ahead and promote your stuff before we uh, move on to the next segment. Okie dokie. You can find me on um, Twitter at, uh, F- at FKA Jason. You can also find our um, Silver and Gold podcast uh, Twitter feed. It's at SNGPod4779. Me and my buddy Roy talk about Booster Gold and Captain Adam. Uh, you can follow, you can uh, subscribe on iTunes to Silver and Gold podcast. Um, something I mentioned, I uh, forgot to mention last time was that, uh, I do special throwback Thursday episodes with my son Vance, where we talk about old 1960s Captain Adam comics. Um, and those seem to be a little bit more popular actually than, uh, our regular show. So I think Vance is the, is the breakout star. Um, but you can find it all at captainadamblog.com, uh, and, uh, like I said, on Twitter, FKA Jason. <clears throat> That's it. All right. Well, thanks for coming on again to talk about Wild Dog. I mean, I know that uh, you just you just couldn't stay away. Uh, yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been really <laughs> great. Yeah. No problem. We'll talk to you next All time. Right. Uh, All right. Well, guys, we are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, Bailey's back to talk about Superman. Booster. Hey, bro. Gah! Bats. Booster. Together. Wow. Well, this is great. This is just awesome. You never said you and Booster were friends. It never came up. A consummate professional like you, friends with a dilettante like Booster? You're both my friends, okay? You're more of a work friend, and Booster is more of a fun friend. What's more fun than fighting crime? Ooh, he's got you there. Hi, this is FKA Jason's son again. I just wanted to take another minute of your time to tell you about his podcast, Silver and Gold. He and his buddy Roy Charlemagne Clary celebrate the DC Comics characters Booster Gold and Captain Adam, issue by issue, and blah, 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 blah. Listen, the real reason you want to listen to the Silver and Gold is their Throwback Thursday episodes, because I'm the star of those shows. Dad and I review the Silver Age Captain Adam stories published by Charlton Comics in the 1960s. You can find the Silver and Gold podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. You can also follow Dad Splitting Adam's blog at CaptainAdamBlog.com. We all know the real reason you'll be tuning in is to hear me criticize, uh, I mean, celebrate the Silver Age Captain Adam in our Throwback Thursday episodes. I can't believe Dad roped me into this.
searching for silver and gold. If you're alone, when you grow old, you'll never find comfort in silver and gold. All right, guys, and we're back from break, and yet again, we're talking Superman, so you know I had to bring back the savvy Superman seer himself, Michael Bailey. I told you I'd have another one down the line. Uh, I like it. It's, it's great. That's going on Facebook, too. So last time around, we talked about kind of where Action Comics was at, why we got Action Comics Weekly, why Superman was sort of back-ended in his own title of origin, and talked about the sort of first double-page spread of this this story, and, and, and a lot of history there. So... Before we get into it, is there anything you want to say about maybe where the creators were at the time for this particular series? Where where uh, Stern and Swan and Beatty were? Well, Roger Stern had spent most of his uh, comic book career up to this point at Marvel Comics, uh, where he was an editor and, the, and a writer. He had a very lengthy run, uh, and a very well remembered run on the Avengers and sometime in around 1987, 1988, he had a falling out with the Avengers editor, Mark Gruenwald and came over to DC, like a lot of his other Marvel people had done. And he, he didn't jump right into Superman. In fact, the same month that the, that these issues come the first four issues of action comics weekly came out, his power of the Adam series also premiered. And but he would very shortly within about two or three months after the, these issues start writing Superman uh, on the Superman title on a regular basis and would continue to do so eventually moving over to Action Comics in 1991 and would stay on action until uh, 1994 with Action Comics number 700 and then about a year or so later come back with the quarterly series Superman the Man of Tomorrow uh, Kurt Swan was largely retired from drawing Superman at this point. Uh, he had done an Earth Stealers one shot with uh, written by John Byrne and inked by Jerry Ordway, uh, but this was, you know, the his first Superman assignment really since John Byrne took over Superman in June of 1986. And of course, Carlin has been involved in Superman already for a while now. Yeah, he came over helping out Andrew Helfer, who ushered in the post-crisis era, and then by Superman number eight, he was the main Superman editor and would stay on the book till about 1996, mm-hmm. uh, when Joey Cavalieri would take on and 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 Carlin at that point kind of assumed a larger role, uh, almost what Dan DiDio was when he first came to DC Comics, which was kind of like an editor in chief, executive editor. Uh, type role for the company but uh carlin uh carlin's a great guy yeah i've seen several documentaries uh about dc comics and uh, various subjects within dc comics and anytime i've seen him in a documentary i i i, I tend to enjoy his his segments and and you know i recognize he's he's one of the faces i recognize before they pop up with a little screen you know what i mean yeah especially in any of the like the little 10 minute previews that they put on the end of DC animated films mm. these days. He'll be in that because he is kind of the head of that department of uh, DC entertainment. Might be why it's so good. Uh, I'd argue some of it, but I don't want to, I don't want to seem like, I'm, no, I don't, I don't, I don't mean all of yeah. it, <laughs> but I just, you know, <laughs> 
It's a plethora of Batman stuff. Well, yeah, because he's the only character DC publishes, right? I mean, it's just <laughs> Batman. and I mean, it used to be like all Batman and Green Lantern, but that seems to have fallen to the wayside, wayside over the past couple of uh, years ever since. Well, I haven't read a Green Lantern book since the beginning of the New 52, so I'm not really qualified to talk about that. <laughs> oh, man. To be fair, though, the Batman stories, most of, most of them, not all of them, most of them are pretty good adaptations. Particularly, I love my favorite animated movie to this date. We're totally off track already. Who cares? Uh, favorite animated movie from DC to this date is Under the Red Hood. Don't know why. Just adore it. <laughs> it it's certainly one of the better ones of the uh, before they started kind of taking on a more new 52 mm. atmosphere. I, I really enjoyed that mainly because I like Neil Patrick Harris as Nightwing. I thought that was a really good fit. Uh, I like uh, Captain Pike as Batman, mm-hmm. uh, even though I will always think of him as uh, JFK from uh, 13 Days. Uh, and, and and just the idea of, of being able to adapt bits and pieces of a death in the family in animated form mm-hmm. uh, was great. And here's the weird thing. I'm one of the guys that liked Judd Winnick's run on Batman. So I, I had absolutely no problem with him coming in and kind of fixing the one big problem with that story. So, yeah, I'll, I'll agree. That's one of the better ones. For sure. But we're here to talk about Superman. We are. We are. <laughs> we are. You speaking, speak just total brief snippet. Speaking of the gruesomeness of death in the family on in animated form, you know they're doing Killing Joke, right? Yeah, I'm not quite. I'm not really. <laughs> I, I I have very negative things to say about that story. So. Okay. All right. We'll move on. So, speaking of moving on, do you want to give us a synopsis for the second part what? of the Superman story? Well, in the last part. Uh, Clark Kent heard some guy getting chased by a gunman and saved him at the very end. Uh, those gunmen at the beginning of this story, which is titled They Can Run, But They Can't Hide, uh, are basically hightailing it out of there once they you know, unload their weapons at Superman. One of their numbers just jumps on the hood of the car, uh, and things don't go very well for him because they don't stop and let him back in because, you know, Superman's after them. And he ends up getting thrown off the car and breaking his leg on a train track. Meanwhile, the uh, guy that was going to go to the discotheque uh, or, or the club or probably some new wave place, uh, I'm assuming, uh, is trying to run away from Superman, runs right into him, and Superman is busy delivering a, a line about anyone foolish enough to break the law usually lives to regret it. As we close on the gunman with the broken leg, uh very much in the style of the cover to Flash number one twenty three, where yep. uh, a dude Flash of two worlds, a dude is uh, about to get uh, crushed by something. This guy's about to get run over by a train, and that's where we end this one. It's first thing right off the bat. Looks like we added a, a guy. <laughs> I uh, because last last time around it was just three guys, and now we've got one of the guys got left behind, but there's two guys in the car and another one on the hood. Well, I just assumed that there was a driver. And that he was okay. just hanging out in the car while they were shooting at, at this dude, like to make a quick getaway. I'll go with it. The only reason I'm pointing it out though is because in the panels where you can see the car in this particular storyline, you can see into the car. Yeah, as opposed to the last one where you just saw uh, the 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 front windshield is all obscured, uh, lighting effect, I guess I would call that. 
where you can't see into it because uh, you're, the camera isn't focusing in on that. Whereas here in the second and third panel, you know, you very clearly see that there's a dude, uh, dude driving uh, another guy who had jumped into the car, and the guy in the brown jacket on the hood of the car, while a uh, white jacket guy uh, who probably has a very healthy record collection uh, is uh, saying, wait, stop, don't leave me here. So it's kind of an amusing chapter, mainly because we're seeing how inept these criminals really are. I mean, <laughs> they suck as a gang. They really do. <laughs> They're terrible. There is no loyalty here. They're just... I was going to get to it next time. But talking about a series of unfortunate events, yeah, <laughs> your your murder gets busted up. One of your crew gets left behind, and a few seconds later, the other one can't make it into the car and gets tossed off the hood of the car. Then has his leg broken. The guy got left who got left behind is stopped immediately by Superman. Like <laughs> series of unfortunate events just culminates from here. <laughs> you know, it's funny because artistically I wouldn't have known that that guy's leg got broken in that one panel without the sound effect, but mm, cause it's like right at the knee, but Swan really sells it in the final panel by having him rub the leg. And I think that's a nice artistic like indication that, you know, he is injured. I also like, and this is where I'm saying that, you know, I said last time that John Beatty kind of, almost ruins Kurt Swan's pencils. Uh, you could see that Swan was trying to, to put something into it. Like the, when the gunman is on the, the roof of the car and his, and his legs sticking up in the air, his pant, uh, his pant falls down and you see his leg and his socks. And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just in, in his, in his loafers. And I, and I think it's, you know, there's a lot of detail in Swan's work. And and Swan the strength of Kurt Swan is that he had he he was such a naturalistic illustrator that the world that Superman lived in looked so real that Superman always seemed that much cooler because he's this awesome thing in a normal world. And, you know, there's a lot of details into just about all of the backgrounds. I mean, you know, there's some cheats here and there. Like, you know, when the gunman is running along the train, you know, as the train gets further and further into the the back of the panel, it loses detail. But it's still, you know, I I think compared, compared to some of the artists that especially you would get in the 90s, there's still so much in the backgrounds that it feels like, you know, this feels like a street level Superman story. And so far it is a street level Superman story and, and very reminiscent of the television series, the George Reeves television series, which makes perfect sense because Roger Stern was uh, one of his big inspirations for Superman was that television series. Yeah. So, so far I'm enjoying this. Yeah, for me, the, the attention to detail was really noticeable in the hood of the car, the grill. I mean, that is a really detailed front end of the car. You you could have gotten away with just a couple of lines for the grill and a couple of rectangles for the headlights. And no, nobody would have really been the wiser. But I've seen that grill on old cars, on older cars, I should say. So that's... That's that's good. And when when you mentioned the pant leg rolling, yes, I, I did it didn't even click in my mind that he could have just drawn a regular you know, like like his legs are in the in the third panel. Mm-hmm. 
He could have just continued that for the other one, but he took the time to do this. So I that makes me appreciate it a whole lot more. But I do see what you're saying. I, I, I was as I was reading this, you know, I'm I'm looking at it and I'm seeing that it was done in the '80s. But by Kurt Swan, but at the same time, I'm looking at this and going, it just looks muddy. And I think, you know, it, it's got to be the inks, mm. like you're saying. It's just there's – the inker is trying to do too much. Especially when you compare it to later when Murphy Anderson does come onto the series and it starts looking more dynamic and more like what you think of when you think of Kurt Swan. Kurt Swan – he had some inkers that worked very well with him in the in the '60s. George Klein, uh, whenever George Klein inked uh, Kurt Swan, it, it was just fantastic. And the same with Murphy Anderson, uh, which they didn't really start teaming up until the late '60s. Uh, but there were certain guys, and I'm not trying to insult these people personally. This is just my my taste in Superman artwork. When you had guys like Frank Chiaramonte. Um, or even Tex Blasdale, uh, who are who are you know fine artists, but for some reason, whenever they would ink uh, Kurt Swan, the story kind of took on. I, I think you hit the nail on the head with the term "muddy." Like mm-hmm. there, there's just something off about it. Uh, so, and again, this is nothing against John Beatty, who's who's a fine inker. I just don't think he was a good fit with uh, for Swan. For sure. All right. Anything else to say about this particular story? Uh, not, uh, not really. It's like two pages, so it's really easy to go through fast. Well, <laughs> hopefully we'll get used to it. <laughs> All right, guys, before we take a quick break, Michael, where can people find you? Uh, viewsfromalongbox.com, which is my, uh, somewhat regular show where I talk about whatever is popping into my head about comics at the moment. And if you want to hear more about this era of Superman, uh, specifically what was going on in the Superman books around this time. Check out From Crisis to Crisis, Superman Podcast, which I co-host with Jeffrey Taylor. You can find that at FortressofBailey2.com and go through the the over 200 episodes that we've put together so far uh, detailing the post-crisis Superman's history. Awesome. All right, well, thanks for coming on, and we are going to go ahead and take a quick break. And when we come back, more Secret Six. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Mike. I'm trailing. Man, it sure is great to be back to FCTC after such a long time. Yes, it is. And we've been away so long. Yeah, but real life... You know what? I just can't do this. Can't do what? We have taken more breaks from this show than my wife has had in her entire life. I mean, we can talk about real life getting in the way. Which it has. But it's it's just not fair. So we're not going to joke around, and we're going to simply say that for the moment, we're back, and there's a lot of neat stuff to talk about. Like season two of Lois and Clark. And the death of Clark Kent. And the launch of Superman the Man of Tomorrow. And the return of Lex Luthor. And the trial of Superman. And Underworld Unleashed. <laughs> the show can still be found at the Superman homepage, as well as at the Fortress of Bailitude. And we're still part of the Superman Podcast Network. So From Crisis to Crisis is back. For now. And it will still come out on Thursdays. Most week at www.fortressofbailitude.com, www.supermanhomepage.com, or www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com.
Okay, guys, and we are back from break, and this time around, again, we are back into the world of Secret Six, uh, and uh, because we're back into the world of Secret Six, I had to bring back Ben Avery. Uh, ben was on with me last time, and both of us being introduced to Secret Six for sort of each of our first time, so welcome back, Ben. Hey, well, glad to be back. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Uh, so... Last time around when we were talking about Secret Six, uh, you and I both, uh, n you know, no real history with, with the characters, kind of going in cold to this uh, comic entity that just sort of had been, as you said last episode, suddenly revived after like 20 years yeah, yeah. out of nowhere. Um, These people were clamoring for it. Exactly. The world, needed, <laughs> the world needed Secret Six. It was a chant. Echoing across the uh, amber waves of grain. Uh, <laughs> well, last Martin Pasco, maybe he was clamoring for it. <laughs> exactly, he was the guy. Uh, so, you know, last last uh, story uh, in, in six hundred one, we are introduced to the plethora of characters. We had acid rain and uh, uh, like heavy acid rain in a, uh, a certain uh, town. Uh, introduced introduced to Technodyne Industries or whatever their corporation, whatever their their subtitle is called. We are introduced to the original Secret Six team, the new Secret Six team, and the muckety mucks behind whatever's going on at Technodyne. So we both came away going, "Well, that was a wild ride." So <laughs> it was just a lot of exposition. A, a whole lot of exposition. So why don't you take us in to the second part of this story? Sure. The second part of the story starts with more exposition. <laughs> uh, it introduces us to the new Secret Six. Uh, so we have Vic Summers. Uh, and I'm just going to basically read the dialogue here. But Vic Summers was one of the most decorated Marines in Vietnam, but was blinded by shrapnel. Uh, then you have Mitch Hoberman who was a sculptor, model maker, and a Hollywood special effects artist. But uh, he's the one with, I guess I called him a writer, I think, last last episode. But um, he uh, he's the guy with the with the very delicate hands. He has rheumatoid arthritis. LaDonna Jamil, a fast-rising actress in the New York theater scene, a demented fan of her soap opera through acid on her face and throat. Her eyesight survived, but her face was disfigured. And her larynx was destroyed. Luke McKendrick, an Olympic gold medalist in track and field. And Terrace planted a, a bomb upon his uh, bus. And he lost both of his legs. And then we have, uh, let's see, Anthony Mategna, who was a Pulitzer Prize winning, winning uh, writer. And he lost his uh, hearing in a dynamite blast that he got caught in when he was researching uh, an expose for um, a, cor a corruption in my, a mine workers union. <laughs> very, very oddly specific in some of this stuff, but you know, it's, it's the story. It's the story. And then there's got Dr. Maria. What? Dr. Verdugo. Yeah. Yeah. Who, um, she's really, really smart, but her, her brain was, uh, damaged. I, I can't find her now. Epilepsy. Okay. So anyway, he talks with them a little bit, introduces them to each other. These are all people who had, you know, were at the top of their game, but now they are defined by their disabilities. And he offers them technology that will help them if 
they dare to use it. Meanwhile, the old Secret Six have met for their party, and they are also addressed by Mockingbird, who gives them the orders to go to San Francisco in their old jet that's been updated for you know, new use. We cut back to the new team, and they're trying out their technological bio- uh, bionic clothing, and it works. Uh, the track guy can walk, and the actress can talk, and... The, the guy with the arthritis in his hands, he has these mechanical gloves that he wears. And uh, Maria has the a helmet that, that soothes the electrical impulses in her brain and allows her to be able to use, use her brain the way she was able to before. And Vic gets his eyesight back. And the blonde woman who came with him turns out is his wife and he can see her again. And so they all have uh, basically been healed by Mockingbird. And the these things come with a price, though, and that's they're they're going to be given orders by Mockingbird. They're going to follow them, and he gives them time to think about it. So they go off to their own places, and as they think it through, Vic decides, you know what? I'm just walking away. I'm not going to answer to this guy. Uh, he walks away, walks into the street to call a taxi cab, and he gets in the street, and suddenly he can't see. Uh, the, the technology has been turned off. So meanwhile, we have a man, at least it seems like we have a man-sized feet, anyway, in footy pajamas. And he is being updated about this whole acid rain situation by a business guy in a business suit. The, the person in the footy pajamas seems to be giving the orders, but... He doesn't want to mess with it right now because he wants to watch Halloween Nightmare Part 4. And the other thing, the other meanwhile, is that the plane carrying the old Secret Six to San Francisco crashes and blows up. (laughs) And that's our cliffhanger. We should mention that the the original Secret Six were on a mission to, quote-unquote, a mission (laughs) to train the new Secret Six. Right, right. But they didn't get there. For sure. Because their plane crashed and blew up. And then it says, next week, the first assignment begins for the new Secret Six. I gotta admit, this was a much better introductory issue. <laughs> yes. For sure. Um, I mean, I kind of, I, I guess I see the point of the previous story because, you know, we, we're joking about it, but we... Maybe there was a Secret Six clamor. Maybe maybe there they appeared in backups or something like that or, or whatever. So when you get you know, when when people are, you know, wanting the rest of that Secret Six story, at the very least to figure out who the hell Mockingbird was, uh, because at the end of the uh, original series as we discussed last ep- last time, uh, you still didn't know who Mockingbird was. So maybe at the very least people wanted that that riddle answered. So, you know, maybe it was it was it was good in a way that all the old Secret Six fans, if if any were reading Action Comics Weekly at the time, were you know going, oh, they're back. You know, it's, you see the title Secret Six, and you go and you saw the cover of Six Hundred One and go, wait, that's not my Secret Six. So then you read this and you go, oh, oh, look, they're they're old now. Look at their name. You know, it's kind of like you know getting the band back together, kind of a thing. But to be honest, we really don't. If you're new to this story, you don't really care about the old Secret Six. 
And I hate to be I hate to be blunt about it, but I re- I really don't care about the old Secret Six. Yeah, and so when the the cliffhanger is them crashing, uh, I have no connection, you know. It, and so that's what the first story was supposed to do. It was supposed to, um, you know, reintroduce us so that when they do crash, you know, well, what's going to happen next to them? Uh, and I do wonder, okay, so why are we introduced to them if they're just going to die in a plane crash? So what's going to happen to them? Um, but, yeah, I, I still feel like there could have been a, a different kind of way to introduce them. But then we jump into this here, and we get all the backstory on the new Secret Six. And when the old Secret Six shows up, and they're on the plane to go to San Francisco for you know to train the new Secret Six, um, we, we at least know who they are now and so, so so there's that but i for me what made this better was the new secret six we're supposed to care about them and we actually see them some of them you know what do they care about what do they want what do they want out of life what do they need and then it becomes interesting you know mockingbird is giving them he knows so much about them and he's giving them what they want and what they need and then you have Vic who decides, you know what? I'm not going to answer to this guy. I love that I can see my wife again, and she's just as beautiful as I remember her. But I'm walking. And he ends up walking in the middle of the street, and they have this weird... It's, I guess it shouldn't be too weird. It's just the they have this panel, and then the next panel is just black. And all of a sudden, you know, then we see him again, and he's, he's yelling that he can't see. And then there's cars in the street that, that he's walking into. Um kind of care you know i i do care about him i want to know what's going to happen to him i don't i don't so much care i mean i want to know but he's really painted in this story like an utter douchebag at least at least from my perspective but kind of, I, at least there's characterization there it's it, true true which is sadly missing from a lot of modern stories um it is there i mean he he obviously has a very pure reaction when he first sees his wife again uh, but he just, you know, he kind of gets up and says, and, and walks out in the middle of the night and says, you know, look, I'll find a place and get settled. As soon as I figured out what I'm going to do, I'll call you. That's true. He's leaving her behind. <laughs> At a hotel, you know, like, all right, I'll call you. See ya. You know, like, <laughs> like, I mean, I, I hate to put, you know, sort of the the angst of one disability over another but i mean come on blindness like you suddenly get your sight back i kind of i mean kind of kind of of anybody i really didn't expect maybe it sounds bad but i didn't expect the blind guy to to do that you know what i mean you know but here's this is where there's kind of subtle backstory and i kind of like this she asks what about gary you know what am i going to tell gary and he says the same thing you've been telling him ever since you found out i was still alive Nothing. I don't think he's living at home with her. I think she's at home with their son. He is, you know, he. This is the guy who received the the wound in uh, in Vietnam, right? Yeah. Yeah, and and so there's this idea. You found out that I was alive, and you haven't told Gary. You know, and I'm assuming it's their son. They don't they don't spell it out, and I like that. I like that kind of figuring things out. You know, the previous issue where you're trying to figure out what's what does this mean you know and and how can i follow these you know jumping around from scene to scene 
I didn't like that, but I do like this kind of figuring out where you're just given subtle things that feel natural in conversation because natural conversation does not go. As you know, Vic, when I found out you were alive, I didn't tell our son because I wasn't sure how to tell him. Yes, I know that, but you you don't do that. And so I kind of like it. I I like that there's subtleness going on to the characters. Um, Now, there's some not so subtle stuff with with some of the other characters uh, when they are able to, you know, put on the technology and and walk and hear and and all that. But yeah, and and, and just throwing it out there, I don't maybe uh, Gary isn't necessarily his son. Maybe she remarried or is dating somebody else because she's if you look in that second panel when he's getting out of bed, she's got a tear in her eye. You know, and they never really hinted anything relationally when they mentioned Gary. So it could be a, a, a you know a kid, or it, it could be a, a, another spouse. Yeah, again, there's that's very subtle. You know, there's no dialogue between the two of them in that whole situation. There, it's all the television talking about uh, the acid rain and the, this terrible, terrible acid rain, and. You know, she follows him out then to the the front desk uh, when he's when he's leaving. He's not living at home with her, and there was some sort of situation where, when he revealed that you know he he's come back into her life, and that could be a a boyfriend or a a husband or or someone else. Yeah. Yeah. What did you think of the art in this particular one? I mean, it's it's obviously pretty consistent from the from the prior issue. Yeah, I like this style. I, I like the style of art. There's some places where I feel like there's maybe a little too much detail in the wrinkly old faces. Right. The old Secret Six. Uh, just, you know, a lot of lines on those faces. That, that comes It becomes a little bit muddy, I guess, because uh, there's so much to it. But overall, I, I like the art. Um, it... it it feels old school, but it doesn't feel too old school. I guess it's it's sure. uh, it, it's consistent, like you said, but it's also a high quality. Um, you know, all the characters are in proportion with with their bodies, and there's no weird angles or anything where you're like, ah, my arms don't move like that. <laughs> I feel it's important here since the original Secret Six is now dead. Uh, you know, I was going to I was going to go into it in the first episode and obviously it would have made sense to go to it in the first episode. But just kind of the way the story unfolded, I think it makes also sense to do it here. So some Secret Six history for the, the listeners out there, because now, you know, we're very clearly in uh, in the original Secret Six is now dead. Uh, and, I'm of that. Say what? I'm not convinced that they're dead. OK, I. I don't know. I, I'm just going to leave it at that. I, I don't have any reason to think that they're not, but I'm not convinced that they are. I guess we'll see. <laughs> I, I don't know how they would survive this, but because it's pretty brutal explosion. So I'm pretty sure but, Grandma didn't parachute out. Well, that's just it. <laughs> that's, that's true. If you have a lot of frail or frailer uh, bodies than, than what they used to have when they were going on missions. But <laughs> Uh, well, f- for 
for the story we see, the Secret Six is now dead, and the new Secret Six is being introduced. So, some Secret Six history seemed apropos. Um, so, just you know, just reading straight from Wikipedia, just some a little bit of information here. Um, the Secret Six first appeared during the Silver Age of Comics in the initial team's seven-issue title, Secret Six, from May of 1968 through May of 1969. Uh, unusually, the premiere issue's story began on the cover and continued on the interior's page one. This strike team of covert operatives consisted of August Durant, Lily de Nueve, I guess, Car- <laughs> Carlo de Rienzi, Mike Tempest, Crimson Dawn, and King Savage. They were created by writer E. Nelson Bridwell and artist Frank Springer. The ongoing series ceased publication with the identity of Mockingbird unrevealed. The first two issues were reprinted in The Brave and the Bold, 117 and 120, as we stated last episode. Um, I also did a little bit of research on uh, sort of the the character, uh, not the characters, the creative team behind the Action Comics Weekly version that we're reading. Um, and some uh, some interesting stuff on actually Technodyne itself, uh, which we'll get into the Technodyne side of things uh, uh, next uh, next episode when we kind okay. of get more into that. But Marty Pascal uh, is actually known for, uh, for 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 several things. Um, one of which he actually uh, is well known for the uh, a Doctor Fate uh, contribution. Believe it or not, according to the Wikipedia entry on 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 Pascal, uh, he says it says a solo Doctor Fate story in first issue special number nine, written by Pascal and drawn by Walt Simonson, led to an important development in the life of the character. With this story, Pascal added the concept that the spirit of Naboo resided in Doctor Fate's helmet and took control of Fate's alter ego Kent Nelson whenever the helmet was donned. So evidently, Pascal is the one who introduced that whole concept into the Doctor Fate mythos that Naboo was in the helmet mm. and took took over the personality from from Kent Nelson. That's that's weird. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's kind of an odd thing to be to be credited for. I did I did read in his early history. This is really cool. How he got introduced into the comic world is really in- intriguing to me. Again, based on Wikipedia, um, more more in depth research will come later on, folks. <laughs> but uh, evidently, uh, he had a uh, association with the editor of DC, Julie Schwartz. He was a frequent contributor to Schwartz's letter columns. Beginning in 1968, Pascal had been nicknamed Pesky Pasco. Uh, Pesky Pascal, in acknowledgement of the fact that his comments were more often than not acutely critical. His campaign to become a letter call regular as a way of breaking into comics writing was inspired and encouraged by his friend and benefactor, writer Mike Friedrich, who advised Pascal that a name that was recognizable from the letters columns would have an advantage in terms of over-the-transom or slush-pile contributions by being more likely to be read before the submissions of writers unknown to the editor. (laughs) That's cool. That was interesting to me. And for those of you who don't know, 
anything Julie Schwartz related is automatically going to catch my eye. I have three heroes in comics, two main ones and one sort of lesser. My two main ones are Julie Schwartz and Neil uh, and, and Denny O'Neill, and sort of to a slightly lesser extent Neil Adams. But Denny O'Neill and Julie Schwartz are my heroes in comics. So when I read that Pascal had a sort of tangential relationship with Julie Schwartz, I was like, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta <laughs> talk about that somehow. <laughs> well, he also has a relationship with one of my comic book heroes. That's really? Steve Gerber. Yeah, Steve Gerber is one of my favorite writers of all time, and uh, he worked with Steve Gerber on <laughs> Thunder the Barbarian, <laughs> and then he. He also worked with uh, on G.I. Joe and Steve Gerber. I don't know how well how much they worked on G.I. Joe together. I just know Steve Gerber wrote like the best G.I. Joe episode ever with the two parter uh, Springfield episode that they did with uh, Shipwreck. And it, it's one of my favorites. Um, but then the other thing for uh, Martin Pascoe is uh, his work on Swamp Thing. And I am a swamp monster nut. I do not know why. I do not know why it is that I like Swamp Monsters. I do not know why it is that I like the stories. But Swamp Thing, Man Thing, Heap, all, all those guys. Um, I, I just enjoy Swamp Monsters. And it's just a, it's a personal problem. I'm looking into it. Um, someday I'll be fixed. But for now, uh, he worked on Saga of the Swamp Thing. Well, you know, just make sure you're in private when you get out your giant size man thing. <laughs> well... Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, anyway, <laughs> throwing you off base completely there. <laughs> but he, yeah, he was doing the Swamp Thing thing before Alan Moore, and his his Swamp Thing stuff I really enjoy because it's offbeat, off kilter, but it's not uh, it's not stuff that people are like clamoring for, like reprint that right now, like they are with like uh, Alan Moore's stuff right. and right. things like that. Are, are you reading just? Since you brought it up, are you uh, and based on when this comes comes out, it may not be relevant. But are you are you reading Len Wein's six issue Swamp Thing that's happening right now at DC? No, I'm waiting for the trade on that one. Okay, okay. I I, I just rather put it on my bookshelf, and I don't want to double dip on that one. Gotcha. I do on occasion. I'll double dip. Um, like Man Thing, I have the huge omnibus hardcover book that I think I'm the one who bought it, but. Uh, but I also have all the issues, you know, and but I, I just it's it's yeah, like I said, it's a it's a personal problem. Uh, as far as Dan Spiegel goes, Dan Spiegel, I mean, he's got a lengthy career in comics, uh, specifically in regards to DC. He did work on Batman, the Unknown Soldier, Tomahawk, Jonah Hex and Teen Titans. Uh, evidently, his most not- notable work was on the Nemesis backup series in The Brave and the Bold with uh, writer Carrie Burkett, and on, notable to Action Comics Weekly fans, Blackhawk with Mark Evanier. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, I, I think actually, he the my my one connection with him is uh, Space Family Robinson. Um, it, it's this old comic that I, I came across when I was a kid. And I don't know if I read the issues he he drew, but that's when I was looking at his his uh, bibliography. That was the one that really stuck out to me. Is that's a it was a really weird old fun sci-fi comic that I liked as a kid. So. For sure, I I mean I really enjoy all of this. It's clear. 
I mean, obviously, Dan Spiegel... I don't see. I don't know much about art, so I'm gonna want to say I, I, I'm going to say inked his own panels in his own pages, but I, I, I don't know for sure. I mean, it, it seems like on some of these panels, these could just be you know heavy pencils with uh, with with color added to them. But I'm gonna go ahead and say they were inked. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, I I don't know if his his art. As it stands on Secret Six in relation to Action Comics Weekly, would be better viewed without the inks. Like maybe the detail would shine a little better, and the inks just muddy it up too much. I really, I really don't know. I just feel like something is off with the art. I, like I agree with you, especially when it comes to the faces of some of the older members of the the, the old Secret Six. Um, there's a lot of extra detail in there that sort of muddy the waters a little bit. Um, and I don't know if that if that would be better served on a with a lighter ink. I I don't know. Uh, I just feel like there's a little too much of something yeah. there. The faces with less detail are are they look great. They look yes. beautiful. You know, I mean, the the women's faces specifically, uh, they they have a there's a beauty to them. Uh, but then you have like the oh, what's his name Mitch with the beard, the um. Yeah, Mitch. <laughs> and it's just this curly, you know, rocking 80s beard or whatever. But it's just not – it looks like he's wearing, you know, mud on his face. And, yeah, I I like the art except for when it gets too detailed. And I, I think you're right. I think there is an element of the, it's the inking that's going on. And they, they don't list an inker. I mean this is the same team as in uh, issue 601. Uh, which I, I don't think I mentioned that when I did the the plot summary, but Martin Pasco did the the writing, Dan Spiegel did the art, Carrie Spiegel again did the the lettering, and Carl Gafford colored, and Dick Giordano did the uh, was the editor here. But yeah, overall, a better experience than last time. <laughs> for that's what I was gonna say. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely it's definitely better. I don't know if I would have preferred a maybe sort of condensing the first eight pages that we got into a more concise and straightforward uh, story and just having this be the first introduction. I mean, obviously, as this first page goes, this is not this is clearly not an introduction to this these characters. Uh, you do need some sort of a lead up before you get to this first page here. But I feel like that could have been accomplished with the prior eight page story that we had that was, I don't want to say unnecessary, but I, that's the only word that's coming to my mind. It was relatively unnecessary. Yeah, I. In terms of getting you to care about a character mm-hmm. that presumably, and at least in your and I case, we had never read before. I would almost have preferred to see like all this stuff in this story here with the new Secret Six, all in that first story. You know, this is interesting. This is where it gets interesting. You find out the backstory for the new Secret Six. You find out he's giving them the equipment to be able to have not just uh, overcome the disability, but have superpower where they once had disability. And that's all interesting to me. I almost wish that maybe we just spent like one or two pages with the old Secret Six. Just here they are, bop, 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 bop. And then 
you know, you could almost then end. I don't know where the story is going exactly other than this acid rain thing that's happening around here, but um, almost, you know, have it so that he, here's the team and I've got this mission, but maybe the first mission is, you know, who killed the original secret six or something like that. Um, instead of, you know, let's get to know all 12, find out what, what makes all 12 of them tick and, and get a kind of a weak opening chapter. This is, like I said, this is where it gets interesting. For sure. All right. Well, do you have anything else you want to say about this particular story? Not, not really. Um, yeah, I think, I think I've pretty much gone through my, <laughs> my personal feelings about, uh, you know, where, where, where we're going with these characters and, and that this actually was good now. And I, I actually want to know what happens next. Last time, not so much. <laughs> not All right. Much anyway. <laughs> All right. So we, uh, you know, obviously we'll, we'll be moving on to the next story. But before we do that, and we'll we'll obviously have you back at least one more time for the Secret Six uh, here uh, next next uh, episode around. But where can people find you in the meantime? Uh, they can find me at welcomedlevel7.com. Uh, seven is spelled out, and that's a podcast about. Uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, particularly uh, Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but all the other stuff, too, and the, the Netflix Daredevil and, and Jessica Jones and all that. And you can also find me at Comic Book Time Machine, comicbooktimemachine.com, where I talk about comic books with um, a couple other guys, and I'm right now exploring a lot of old Marvel science fiction comics, like Star Wars. <laughs> All right, guys, Uh, we will go ahead and take a break. And when we come back, the continuing adventures of the Naked Blackhawk. Guys, we finally developed our time machine. Should we use it to go back and see how Stonehenge was built? Or become friends with Hitler and convince him to stay in art school? Or we could go back in time and get the comic books we missed. Yeah! Yeah! The Comic Book Time Machine. A journey back in time to explore comic books. Good and bad. Whether from seven decades ago or seven days ago. Join our journey at comicbooktimemachine.com. Haka! <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I am back with Professor Alan Middleton, and we are talking yet again about Blackhawk. <laughs> because, you know, we can't get enough. Welcome back, Alan. Glad to be here, Chad. Awesome. Awesome. So you want to just hop right into it? Let's do it. All right, go ahead. What's the synopsis for this second part of the Black Hawk story? From Action Comics 602, Another Fine War, Part 2. Written by Mike Grell, with art by Rick Burchett and Pablo Marcos. Again, colored by Tom Zuko, lettered by Steve Haney, and edited by Mike Gold. Black Hawk fights his way past Zalecki and Zalecki's buddies, like, like any naked, two-fisted man of action would. He gets some help from the blonde from the prior issue who managed to find his room just in time to see him jump out of the tub with nothing but a gun belt and a smile and his hat, but no scarf. Anyway, he grabs some clothes. They flee the hotel and she introduces herself as Cynthia Hastings and she has a job for him. He tells her what it's going to cost, and she seems pre- prepared to meet any of Janos's demands. After some flirting, I guess, that ends with her slugging him out of his chair, she tells him about their mission. 
It has to do with several million dollars in gold, and it's finders keepers. Next week, the Red Dragon. I wouldn't say it's flirting so much as sexual harassment. <laughs> you know, it was it was a it was a it was a simpler time, Chad. It was a simpler time back then. Girls are just okay with you pulling open their tube tops so you can just take a peek. <laughs> Good grief. This you get your introduction if you'd never read Blackhawk before. Your introduction in the pages of Action Comics Weekly is two stories of him fighting people bare ass naked. <laughs> if you're not in <laughs> by the end of this story by the end of this issue, this particular story in this issue, <laughs> I mean, it's it's there's there's no there's nothing on surface to confuse you because there's nothing there. <laughs> I have to say I love the splash page. It's actually the second page of the story. But the splash page, A, literally because there are splashes, because he's gotten out of the tub. And he just manages to be slugging one guy just so he happens to fall so that we don't, you know, see little Blackhawk. <laughs> I think it's very, very well done. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's on the next page, there's a panel where he bashes somebody with a chair. And then <laughs> the plank of the chair just happens. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of uh, and the, a couple of these panels they get real close especially the one right above the panel I was just talking yeah. about looks like way too close <laughs> um, and he must have punched through that room divider because it's this is Singapore 1947 that that divider's got to be a wood frame with sort of a paper mesh yeah, I think so <laughs> <laughs> um Convenient that somebody slipped on the soap. <laughs> I, <laughs> Just, and, and and then he gets some uh, he gets some help from the blonde who bashes a guy over the head with a chair, as you do. <laughs> to which he responds, "You swing a mean stool." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, while we're in the middle of the toilet humor, I mean, just. Exactly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Somehow he just has gobs of cash to just toss the women. Like, he, at least he remembered to pay them. <laughs> See? Because as we've learned, he he just does not like owing people. He always pays his debts. That's the theme of the story. <laughs> I mean, I I, I love that the, the $10,000 that he owed Zalecki was from a poker game. And that Blackhawk is convinced that the man was cheating. Because he was cheating... And still losing to that guy. <laughs> so he must have been cheating even more than I was. Uh, this dude. I mean, I was I was going to get to it the next time we recorded. But I just might as well get to it now. I don't know who he reminds me. He's like, I want to say he's a an indie Han Solo meshing together, but just dialed up to 12 <laughs> in the whole... You know, forward forwardness with women and, and just, you know, he's because, you know, as much as you admire the, the Harrison Ford roles of Indian Han, they were still sort of subtle roles. I mean, yeah. they weren't as on the nose as this guy. And I don't know if I've seen this guy in a movie. You know who he reminds yeah. me of? He reminds me actually kind of of Humphrey Bogart's character in The Maltese Falcon. Right. And that's one of my that. favorite movies of all time. Um, 
which you will hear me talk about at some point or have, <laughs> or have already heard me talk about on a podcast. Figure that out, Fire and Water community, uh, <laughs> at some point. But one of the reasons, and you know, one of the reasons I love that movie so much is just the the, the Sam Spade character. He just says everything that's on his mind and doesn't give a damn what anybody else thinks. And, <laughs> and this is like that guy who's and and I'm assuming the Sam Spade character had served in the military, and I, I don't. No, no, remember if he was addressed in the movie. But anyways, I'm assuming he'd been in the military. But this guy is just like, he's an old war dog without a war. Exactly. I, I, I think that's a really interesting theme. I think it's a really interesting idea. I think it is too, and that's why uh, last time we recorded, I said all the issues of Blackhawk I had read were completely useless because they <laughs> they, they frame Blackhawk in a war. In the fight, with stuff going on in a team around him that's all about winning a battle, winning the war, winning the fight, there's no more fight. What does Blackhawk do? Right. Now, I covered uh, – it's one of the best quarterbin finds I've ever found. Was I, cu- I found a uh, issue of Blackhawk. It was 122, very early in the – 1958, by far the oldest book I've ever found in a quarterbin. I assume it was there by accident. I mean, it was it was uh, it was priced correctly, but I'm sure someone didn't know what they had. Which uh, that's a that's just a there's a Professor Allen's cheap comic book uh, tips and tricks. The best deals you can find are at used bookstores, not at the comic book store, because the comic book store they know what they have. You know, they have all those issues of miscellaneous '90s mumbo jumbo, which is probably worth a quarter, but. My other favorite place, and there are a few of these in Austin, Chad. They are half half price books. They uh, and, and 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 other used bookstores that have dollar bins or fifty cent bins or twenty five cent. I just they just don't know what they have, and so I think there's some willy nilly pricing going on. So I found this in adequate condition for a nearly sixty year old comic issue of Black Hawk one twenty two, and it said it was from nineteen fifty eight. And the stories being told in there were from that period. Mm-hmm. So there's really no war going on. So they weren't, you know, they weren't flashback to World War II stories. They were contemporary, late 1950s stories. And again, each, each one had this feel of, well, I guess this is what a military unit does when there's really not that much going on. They have adventures and, you know, they tried to build up, to build up some villains and you know antagonists but it was more of a un police type of you know because they they there wasn't a there wasn't a war for them to fight yeah so you know seems to me they are one of the uh, one of these characters that really is tied in to that era and it you know it's it seems like it almost feels like (sighs) There's some pain behind him right now. Oh, absolutely. Here. Be- because there's no war. Uh, I mean, maybe for other reasons. But right. part but of I th- it... I, I, I think that was, that's part of what was laid down, you know, the first time that we talked. Yeah. You know, how the, how the, how, uh, the first segment of the story started, uh, you know, with, with some of that, that, that motif as well. Right. But, yeah. but here, but here is, is where we get the really... The dissolute version 
of this guy, it seems to me. And it, and it seems to me that that's sort of reasonable, as, as you're saying. He's, he certainly seems lost. And, you know, we've given a name to PTSD or whatever, you know, in the last decade or so. But it obviously existed beforehand. Hmm. Uh, we didn't have the therapeutic language. But here, you know, what, what Janos is doing is coping, I guess, you know, the best way he knows, alcohol, poker, the ladies. Yeah. You know, he's sort of trying to make do. And again, there wasn't there wasn't the language for it. There wasn't the culture for it. wasn't the support for it. I mean, they, they, but they, there certainly is a hint of you know, melancholy sort of over these issues. That that to me just gives it an emotional depth. Yeah, and and I think I think that's where I, I sort of you know one fourth of the way rescind my statement that reading the, those five <laughs> issues of Blackhawk were worthless. They weren't in the fact that I got to see who this guy was in a war. He seemed, yes, he was still, you know, rambunctious and, you know, the, the, it, for, for Green Lantern fans, the Hal Jordan sort of fly boy. Um, but right. uh-huh. he, it seemed like he was more respectful, you know, more contained, more, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the word is there. This seems like, you know, it's like all those tendencies are amped up. And he, because he's got nobody to answer to, nobody around who cares, you know, he just doesn't, like you said, the whole PTSD concept, he just, he's, he's, there's, there's several people out there who like, and and this was a theme, I think, in, uh, I don't know if you watched this, Alan, but the, the Parenthood series. Yes. Mm -hmm. That was a great show. Loved it. I don't know how long, if if you watched the whole thing or not, but. Yes. Okay. There was a character oh, right. that Amber was dating. The character of Amber was dating, and he was a uh, an Iraq Afghanistan veteran, and he'd come back and suffering through a lot of PTSD and issues and all this stuff. And then he just ended up re-enlisting. Because, exactly, that was the only place he could find yes me- meaning, value, structure, whatever it is. Yeah, that's the only place he could find a purpose. Mm-hmm. And I didn't understand that watching that show because I've never been in that. You know, I, I've never been in a position where I've had to go fight a war or wor- even worry about being drafted into one. I mean, really. I mean, after 9-11, you know, my group, my, my group of, of, of friends and stuff may have thought about it and it crossed our minds that after that huge of a terrorist attack, the, the, the reality was more than ever in our lifetime. But I really didn't believe it would happen. But this is... This and it's not something I could, I could understand watching that character development in in on that TV show Parenthood, and it's not something I can understand now. But reading this story, it's almost like I'm getting a better handle on that idea that there are some people out there who once they enlist and once they go through these types of experiences, that's their identity. That's they they completely change. That's who they are, and they cannot exist or feel they cannot exist without that i'll say that um for a lot of your listeners might might not know uh, me from my other shows but i am in fact a university professor and you know we get a fair number of students returning to college you know after three years or six years in, in the military and a they are no surprise some of the best students that we have 
disciplined and and all of those things and but i think one of the one of the reasons that someone like that might thrive in an educational environment is because there are deadlines and assignments and due dates you know there's a structure mm-hmm. and they're used to they're used to that structure um, and i think sometimes you know someone here like like blackhawk just sort of as a free agent you know out 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 in the world without that structure without that discipline without a commanding officer we see the trouble he gets into yeah yeah and you know it it it's it was odd because and i don't really have much else to say about this particular storyline other than the kind of the the emotional depth that's that's that we've been talking about without because like i said i read i read these first before I read the the, the five issues, mm-hmm. um, and I felt sorry for Blackhawk, mm-hmm. and they accomplished it in sixteen pages, and it wasn't right. like a it, it wasn't like a on the nose pity, either. Which comics no. is is highly capable of always doing, and they they want that they want you to feel that for that character, so they put too many things on the nose. This. You you don't ever see him feel sorry for himself, right? But you come away right. feeling sorry for him anyways, mm-hmm. which I thought was masterful storytelling. Yeah, yeah. The and the, the, the sort of the the overarching may, may, maybe element or or at least the the surface level of this of this particular segment is humor. Mm. You talked about the guys slipping on the soap during the fight scene. Right. Obviously, you know, positioning himself so his being nude, you know, I mean that that in in that in essence is is used for humor. Here at the end, even his uh, sexual harassment is you know turns into a humorous moment. So you know, there's you know, but but that's the surface level, you know. There is something underneath that as well. Yeah, and I didn't even I didn't even make that connection that the design of this eight pages was humor essentially more more character development more plot obviously as as you do in any story but this particular eight pages was designed for more or less humor so the fact that it still pulled off a feel sorry for this dude vibe and an emotional undertone just I would, I, don't, I mean I don't. I know Grell is well known for several other things in the comics industry, way more than this. But that is, like, like I said, that is masterful storytelling. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Especially accomplished uh, through the art. Now, I will be honest, the art is not my favorite. Uh, yeah. But it it's serviceable, at least. Yeah, I th- and I, I thought the layouts in this one were a little more conventional. Yes, for the most part, certainly t- towards the last, the last half of it, mm. you know, much more, you know, square and rectangular panels, organized in a, in a more, a more, somewhat more, more tr- traditional layout. But I thought most of the, the figures were reasonable, you know, mm. were well enough, uh, you know, told, uh, showed, showed well enough what was going on, were consistent enough. Some of the facial expressions worked. Mm-hmm. But it's it's certainly not. I, I, the art is not the highlight of the story. For sure. 
All right. Do you have anything else to say about this particular story? No, I don't. All right. Well, thank you so much uh, for coming on again, Alan. Appreciate it. Again, where can people find you across the net? We're going to be found at Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. That's where my daughter Emily and I do most of our shows. The Quarter Bend Podcast, Short Box Showcase, and a few others. But Chad's favorite show that we do <laughs> is Dorkness to Light. That's available on another feed at dorknesstolight.blogspot.com. You should make that part of your uh, promotional material. <laughs> Chad Bokelman of Action Comics Weekly Podcast raves! <laughs> So we are going to go ahead and close out. This is the last story of this particular issue. So I'm going to take a quick break, and when we come back, listener feedback. When you think of podcasts about religion, you probably think of this. But at least one religion podcast sounds more like this. I kick ass for the Lord! Dorkness to Light is a relatively geeky production in which Alan and Emily discuss topics of faith, religion, and spirituality. But we do so through the lens of pop culture, like movies, TV, and comic books, because we're nerds. Our primary focus will be on Christianity, because that's what we know best. But all religious content is on the table. Well, think about it, Scully, from vampirism to Catholicism. This is an occasional cast, to be recorded and released as the mood strikes, with topics ranging from in-depth reviews to personal rants about some small aspect of theology or church history, because we're theological nerds. If these topics interest you, check out dorknesstolight.blogspot.com for our more regular content. Or dorknesstolight.tumblr.com for our more irregular content. Memes and puns, mostly. My bad. Dorkness to light. Often irreverent, rarely sacrilegious. Alright guys, and that does it for the second episode of the Action Comics Weekly Podcast. Now, last episode, this point in the podcast, I was kind of stumbling to give you some places to reach out to me. Well, as you can hear by this paper rustling, I've got feedback Holy crap. <laughs> so, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven pages worth of feedback. Now, it's not tiny, 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 tight print, so I guess that doesn't really count. But hey, not bad for the first episode of a new podcast. So, first and foremost, just to give people a deserved shout-out for promoting the show in any way they can, I really, really, really appreciate the time people take to like, favorite, retweets, share any sort of content for this show across the podcasting, uh, across the social media sphere. So Facebook likes and shares for episode 601 came from, and I do apologize if I pronounce your name wrong, Adam Stabelli, Al Sedano, Basil Ale, Billy Hogan, Bradley Austin Null, Clinton Robson, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Book Time Machine, Cosmic Cat Comics, Dale Russell, Daniel Budnick, Eric Jack Nash, Eric Wilkinson Gilliard, Gene Hendricks, Gord Tolton, Harlan Freelicher, The Irredeemable Shag, Jay Jones, Jeffrey Davis, Jonathan Brown, Keith G. Baker, Lettuce, Legacy Brand Comics, Mario Benzi, Martin Gray, Michael Lane, 
Michael Fief, Mike Peacock, Nicholas Prom, Ozzy Ray, Sean Ross, Sean Strawbridge, Silver and Gold Podcast, and Tim Wallace. Comics Podcasting's common nemesis, the Irredeemable Shag, said, The first episode of the Action Comics Weekly Podcast is now available. Go get little Chad Bokelman's opus. Can't wait to listen myself. Well, have you listened yet, Shag? Have you? Come on, dude. It's not like you have anything better to do. <laughs> Clinton Robinson replied to that, Three hours? And you aren't even on here, Shag. Goodness. Come on, dude. <laughs> what? Is that an insult towards Shag, or are we saying three hours is too long? I'm giving you guys two weeks to listen to these episodes. Come on now. And Martin Gray said in response to Shag's post, Good luck, and I expect an entertaining download. Well, Martin, man, I don't have any feedback from you. What do you think? Was it an entertaining download? Are you referring to the download itself, or like the actual listening of the podcast? <laughs> um... The Facebook posts themselves, we received a number of comments from people such as Gord Tolton, who said, Congratulations, listening right now, and I love the format of the show. I collected this religiously back in the day. It was such an exciting way to read comics in its original Golden Age format. Expensive, maybe, but not so much in this age of $3, $4, and $5 single issues. I still have them, and may bring them out to read along as you progress. Good luck with the show. Thanks, Gord. I really appreciate it. Um... I'm glad you like the format. I hope it doesn't change too much as we go. At least the basic concept should remain the same, the the regular layout. So I do appreciate though that shout out. And yeah, the it's been so hard trying to put myself in the mind of somebody who would be buying comics in you know 88, 89, trying to figure out you know price wise, just you know with inflation and adjusting for inflation and stuff like what my allowance would be at the time. If I were into comics uh, consistently as a kid, would I have picked up this series? What would I have been interested in? It's really hard to put myself in that mindset since I wasn't buying comics as a kid. Um, but I'm trying, I'm trying, and if you guys remember buying the series as it came out, definitely leave me your feedback as we go. What you were thinking as you were reading each of these issues and how you kind of narrowed it down to figure out, you know, am I going to keep reading this? Why? What interests me? Why? You know, those types of things. I definitely would like to know. Billy Hogan said, looking forward to Professor Alan Middleton talk about the Blackhawk stories. They were my favorite in this series. Writer Martin Pascal and artist Rick Burchett did a great job on Blackhawk. He had, now, he actually tagged Martin Pascal and Rich Burchett in his comment, and Martin Pascal replied, what? So, yeah, you better believe I'm reading this. He says, thank you for your kind words, Billy Hogan. I'm kind of proud of what Rick, one of my favorite collaborators of all time, Burchett, and I did on that Blackhawk stuff. And I know it wasn't popular among the hardcore Schiff era Blackhawk fans. You know, the ones who think the Ebony or Spiegel stuff was all that in a bag of chips. So, damn me as a heretic, but I really loved Howard Chaikin's reimagining of the property. And one of the greatest thrills of my professional life was Howard's acknowledgement to me that I understood the sensibility of his reboot, and that he respected what Rick, Mike Gold, and I were trying to do with it. That meant a lot to me. To which Billy replied, I also read Chaikin's miniseries and liked the more grounded take on Blackhawk over the science fiction style 60s stories I vaguely remember reading as a kid. What I liked about your Blackhawk series was how it touched on post-World War II American history. My favorite individual issue was the one of the old Jewish tattoo artists. <laughs> Dude, episode one? One. As I record this, only episode one is out, and already creators are aware this podcast exists. What? <laughs> are you serious right now? 
Thanks, Billy, for tagging Martin Pascal, because you better believe I'm hoping to reach out to him at some point in the near future. Um, <laughs> I have no idea what to say. Martin Pascal replied to a comment on a post about the Action Comics Weekly podcast. <laughs> Episode 1. Well, 601, but whatever. <laughs> Just, What? Anyway, Legacy Brand Comics said, Just click play. The variety of characters, stories, and hosts will be the key to this podcast's success, I suspect. Best of luck, guys. Well, it's just me, plus my co-hosts. So, are we talking just to me? No, no, he's talking to everybody. He's talking to everybody. Well, thanks, Legacy. Um, I believe I know who that is, but I don't want to speak out of turn, so I'll shut up. Now, in addition to hyping the original release of episode 601, I also posted on the Facebook page that I've had an idea kind of going in the back of my head. Now, over on the Lantern Cast, one of the things I love doing is interviewing creators. As a kid, I wanted to be a journalist, and it just really didn't pan out. I'm not going to go into my whole sob story history about what happened and blah, 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 but suffice it to say, I didn't get to go to college for journalism, and I really wanted to. So one of the things I tried to do uh, when I first became a listener of the Lantern Cast, not a co-host, a listener, was like on uh, one of the first things I ever did for the show. I went to a free comic book day event here in Austin, Texas at a comic book store where Scott Collins was signing. And I brought a small portable voice recorder and interviewed Scott for the Lantern Cast to play on the show. I didn't do it to become a co-host. I didn't do it for any other reason than I wanted to contribute something to one of my favorite podcasts. And they aired it on their show. Well, I loved doing it. And after I became a co-host on the show, I started applying for like press passes and stuff to local comic conventions so I could interview more people. I love doing interviews. I don't know if I'm actually <laughs> really any good at it, but I, I think passion counts for a lot of things when it comes to interviewing people. They... You know, instead of just sitting in front of them with a list of questions and going beat by beat, it's nice to just sit in front of somebody, have them look you in the eyes as they're interviewing you or you're interviewing them, and have a conversation with them. I think the best interviews are conversations rather than just straight on, you know, question and answer lists. And I kind of want to do that with this show. Now, the problem is I really can only stick to the bi-weekly format and... I was curious if you as listeners would be okay with every now and then getting a short episode from me. So let's say, and it's not going to happen really super soon, but let's say, let's say in place of episode like 605, instead of getting a full review type episode like you're getting now, you get an interview with a creator from the Action Comics Weekly series. Maybe 30 minutes, maybe an hour, something like that. These interviews usually go about half an hour to an hour, maybe longer if the person has time and wants to talk. But um, would you would you be bothered by that? You know, waiting two weeks for an episode of a podcast you seemingly enjoy listening to only to not have the content you're expecting. Now, I would imagine you guys wouldn't be pissed at receiving, like, relevant material, an interview with a creator from the series, but... When you're expecting a, 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 a something like this review episode, would you be disappointed or upset when you receive an interview instead? 
Now, a couple of people replied to that post. Gene Hendricks said, I love to hear interviews if you can make it happen. Jay Jones, the uh, wild dog expert, <laughs> said, me too. Interview the wild dog guy and ask him why. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to go that far. Keith G. Baker said, I love interviews, but I think if you do whatever you like and what you're comfortable with, it'll show in the final product. I enjoyed the first episode. And that's kind of the idea I'm going for there. You know, I mean, I feel like I love doing interviews. I think they're fun. I think they're a great glimpse at the history behind things. As much as I'd like to do research on some of these series, these creators, and and the reasoning behind putting X story in the Action Comics Weekly series as opposed to another character or, or whatever, the internet can only give you so much information. Like, you, you don't obviously want to use Wikipedia as a source whenever possible, but it's so much better hearing directly from the sources themselves, and every now and then you get really, really cool stories. I've talked to Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams. I've talked to Scott Collins and uh, Daryl Banks and, uh, and Ron Mars and all kinds of people. And you get such great stories from those people when they, you know, even if they have a limited time frame, you know, as long as you're interacting with them on an enjoyable level that really shows and it gets them to talk a lot. And it's, I don't know, it's a lot of fun. I, I You can tell I enjoy it. But again, as much as I do this show for, for myself and trying to accomplish this, as we'll refer to it later, possibly a Herculean task, you'll see when we get there, um... I also do it for you guys. You know, nobody does a podcast, you know, with the intent of no one listening. So to a certain extent, I do want to take into consideration what you want to hear. So be sure to write in on the Facebook page or on the website at actionweeklypodcast.wordpress.com and let me know. Now, on that same post, Michael Fief said, nice, massive debut. This will feed my love-hate relationship with Action Comics Weekly perfectly. <laughs> love-hate? We'll see, buddy. <laughs> now, he does say, one quick note, Gaspar Saldino, whose identity was unknown in the front end of the episode, passed away a few days ago. He was a legendary letterer, and he provided a link to his obituary uh, from uh, Klein Letters, which is Todd Klein's blog. Um, and um, I really, I was going to pull some quotes from, from Todd Klein's blog uh, about Gaspar, but Gaspar was such an influence on Todd. And I don't mean just like one of the influences. I'm talking like the main influence for Todd Klein as a letterer. That, you know, Todd's a man of relatively few words. You know, he I, I do follow his blog. I do follow him on Facebook. Um, you know, when he posted a review like for a single issue about comics. He does review comics every now and then. Current comics, actually. Uh, it's always like one paragraph or so. so but he... I think it's important to read the words of somebody directly connected and influenced by somebody like Gaspar. And I really highly encourage you to go to KleinLetters.com uh, and check out the post about Gaspar. And just read in Todd Klein's own words what he has to say. Um, I do appreciate Michael for pointing out uh, that that information about Gaspar. I obviously, uh, based on what you heard earlier in the episode, I do know who Gas, I, I do and did know who Gaspar is. Um, we just didn't really touch on it very much in the, in, in, in the podcast. Um, obviously now I wish we had, but again, reiterating this episode is dedicated to the memory of Gaspar. Um, 
Now, over to Twitter. Twitter likes and retweets for the first episode came from Andrew in Belfast. Andy Macon, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comics Tweets, Danny Dowell, David Watkins, Doug Zavisha, Gene Hendricks, Gloria Morales, The Hammer Strikes, Hicks, Keith G. Baker, Legacy Brand Comics, Mike Street, Richard Green, Sahand Hajizadeh, TheSavvyYP.com, Silver and Gold, Sin, Two True Freaks, and Xenozoic Xenophiles. Doug Zavisha said, just in time for a construction complicated commute. Dude, you were on the episode. Like, can't you fast forward through your own part and help save some uh, time? Is your is your commute really three hours? Cause that sucks. <laughs> Sorry, dude. Uh, Hicks said it's real. I thought this was a long game April Fool's prank. <laughs> no, dude. I'm really doing an Action Comics Weekly podcast. <laughs> I'll leave it to you to figure out whether that's a good idea or not. But you know what? I'm committed. I'm doing it anyways. Uh, Kichi Baker said, great first episode, Chad. I enjoyed it a lot. Wild Dog Rules. Not really. <laughs> you really contradicted yourself in your own tweet? <laughs> Is everybody going to be piling on Wild Dog this entire series? Like, I, not that I'm against it, but... <laughs> I'm just waiting for something of real substance to happen in the Wild Dog series. I'm telling you, if it does, I will acknowledge it. I will hype it, and I will say, awesome, look, see that thing they did there, whether it's artistically or storytelling-wise or something? I, I will praise it till the cows come home. Yes, I'm from Texas. I'm going to say till the cows come home. Anyways, they do something awesome. They do something right. I'm going to praise it. I will give it its, its due diligence, its due coverage, whatever you want to call it. I will do it. But up until now, I think Wild Dog is kind of earning its rep. <laughs> we'll see, though. Now... Over to the website. That's right. We have website comments already. Awesome. Now it's kind of the same people. Some of the people we've already heard from. But, you know, hey, I had to do it. Um, by the way, guys, please, 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 please. The single best place to leave feedback for the show is on the website. At, got a pen and paper? Are you on, like, Google Chrome right now? Can you type it in? actionweeklypodcast.wordpress.com that is the best place to leave comments on each individual post for each individual episode uh, and I will read them here on the show now if we get pages and pages and pages of comments then I might have to start limiting down but I'm going to do my best to try and read at least something from everybody's comments or at least mention them because I really really appreciate y'all's feedback it helps me realize that I'm not just talking out into the ether Speaking of, Gene Hendricks says, he says, it's truly a golden age of podcasting when we get an Action Comics Weekly show. And I'm not even being sarcastic. Sure about that? He says, I discovered Action Comics Weekly when I was going backwards in filling my post-crisis Superman run. And I'm not ashamed to admit that I pretty much skipped over them. As Michael Bailey stated, there's really no way to fit this into the chronology. So I thought it would be better to not even try. I really enjoyed this episode, and while I'm not going to run out and try and find these issues, I can see that I'm going to have a good time listening. All of the guests were really good, even if the various strips didn't didn't all grab my attention. I'm looking at you, Wild Dog. I'm looking forward to 602 in a couple of weeks. Thanks, Gene. I really appreciate it, man. Uh, I hope this episode lived up to the hype, and I hope, like I said at the beginning of the episode, that I really kind of settle into a groove with this podcast. Um... I really admire Ryan Daly's Secret Origins podcast for several reasons, but the main thing, the main reason I started listening consistently is Ryan very clearly had a plan. 
He had a layout. He had an idea of what he wanted to accomplish, how he wanted to accomplish it, how he wanted each segment to sound. He wrote down intros and outros. He says the same disclaimer. Like, he does things in a very particular way. And I really, really admire that. And as much as I try to be uh, typed out and, uh, you know, try and and try and adhere to a specific direction, I do understand on my end that my mind is constantly changing. And while the format of this show won't change drastically, I cannot bring myself to adhere strictly to a certain format without first test running it, trial running it, um, getting feedback on it, trying to tweak things to sound slightly better, and you know, so on and so forth. There's a lot of trial and error. There's a lot of focus grouping, you know, that kind of stuff. So if I were to wait to release this podcast until I thought I had it perfect, you guys wouldn't hear it until like this time next year. But I wanted to get it out, and I feel like with the reaction that I've gotten so far from 601, that I've settled onto a basic template that works. And I'm going to keep tweaking it and trying to move it around in a way that it creates a better product episode by episode for you guys, but also maintains a consistency from start to finish in terms of segments, layout, stuff like that. But I do want to let you know, keep in mind that there might be slight tweaks here and there. It's a podcast that I'm trying to perfect. It's not one that's perfect right out of the gate. KGBUNC says, and I'm assuming that's Keith G. Baker, but I don't know. If that is somebody else, you please, 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 please let me know so I can give you proper credit. But this person says, great first show. Really enjoyed it. Just a few things about Wild Dog and the Quad Cities. The Quad Cities is an actual place along the Iowa-Illinois border, just a short drive west of Chicago. And that area is considered one of the most dangerous in Iowa and Illinois. In fact, Rock Island, one of the cities, hosted the first ever NFL game. As far as Wild Dog not being a DC-type character because of the violence he displays, I suppose you guys were forgetting characters such as Vigilante, Checkmate, Suicide Squad, who killed on a regular basis. Also, at the time this came out, you had Green Arrow longbow hunting dudes in the Seattle streets and the question collapsing bad guys' skulls up in Hub City. Wild Dog was no more violent than they. Nor do I think you can murder terrorists when you are saving hostages. Using deadly force to save someone from imminent death or great bodily harm is perfectly legal in most states, including Iowa and Illinois. And, I would think, applies to this situation. He was not he was just not written to be a sympathetic character and in my opinion not really written well at all. Last note, I've always assumed that the dog on his jersey, though it says it's it is from State U, represented the Western Illinois University Leathernecks mascot with the color scheme changed to protect the innocent, I suppose. I also forgot to mention that Max Allen Collins was from Muscatine, Iowa, which is just downriver from the Quad Cities. So, in response to Keith I, obviously he's not like being in, in your face about it. Keith's a great guy and he obviously was very complimentary of the show through various several various social media uh, outlets. I suppose I should sort of clarify that last episode uh, and, and that particular comment that I made uh, and that, that Jay made about, about Wild Dog. Now, 
Here's the deal. I get that in the late 80s, early 90s, comics in general were going to a dark place. And I don't mean that critically. I, You know, you've got... An, an, again, guys, as I said in the first episode, I'm not a comics expert. So if some of this happened, you know, earlier or later, forgive me. But I'm just sort of reaching for the 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 general places people go when they talk about darker uh comics you know you, you got swamp thing you've got the killing joke uh you've got watchmen you've got i mean you've, you've got so many different comics uh and that's that's just dc that we're going to darker places oftentimes even even artistically not just tonally but artistically darker places um so I do understand that a character such as Wild Dog does actually fit into those types of stories and universe. But, and it might be what you said, Keith. It might be the fact that he just wasn't really written to be sympathetic and therefore feels like he doesn't quite fit. But I don't know. I feel like there's something else about Wild Dog that just doesn't feel like his stories connect to the dc universe and i do not mean that in terms of like flash doesn't show up or whatever i just mean like i feel that there's some aspect of that story and it you're very well right you, you could very well be right it could be the fact that it just is isn't for now written particularly well but it just doesn't feel like it connects with the rest of the dc universe like i can't place it now, I do appreciate the information on the Quad Cities and stuff like that. That stuff is stuff like that, guys, is exactly why I said at the beginning of the first episode that I'd be relying heavily on both my guests and the listening community. Keith, you got the hookup, man. Like, if I had some sort of Steam Award like the Fire and Water podcast does, uh, you'd, you'd earn it for this episode. Um, but seriously... That kind of stuff is why I rely on, on on this podcast listening audience, and I'm so glad I've already got feedback from people like you guys because that's just awesome. But like I said, I don't feel like Wild Dog fits in the DC universe, and I don't yet know why. I feel like maybe I'll get a better handle on it as we go, but as of right now, I just I can't put my finger on it. There's something about Wild Dog overall. Just, just forgetting the actual content within the stories, just basic concept, I just, I don't feel like he fits in the DC universe, and I realize he's kind of like a Punisher analog for DC, it's just that, you know, I know you've got characters like Lobo and... You know, stuff like that, you know, I don't know why Lobo's the only one that's popping into my head right now. I know there's like a billion others, but I know you've got characters like that in the DC universe and, you know, like the Joker, when Joker goes batshit crazy and starts killing people and like he hasn't always done that, but whatever, just there's, there's, there's room for darkness and depravity and violence and blah, blah, blah in the DC universe. There always has been. But there's something about Wild Dog and the way he does it that just doesn't seem to fit for me. And I'm not going to continue struggling for words and, and drawing on this podcast. But I don't know. Maybe some of you guys could tell me why you particularly don't like Wild Dog or feel, if you feel the same way I do, why you feel he doesn't fit in the DC Universe. And maybe that'll help clarify some of my own thoughts. But as for right now, I'm just sort of waiting on seeing where we go from here. <laughs>
Now, Jay Jones says the artist Terry Beatty was also from Muscaline. I actually knew that. It just didn't come up for some reason. He said, now, I said in, in clarifying, he also said in clarifying his own statements about Wild Dog. He also said in clarifying his own statements about Wild Dog. Now, I said it wasn't, quote unquote, my DC Comics because I didn't read those other books you mentioned. Except I did read Suicide Squad, so maybe I'm full of it. Or forgot. <laughs> Probably full of it. He says, when the Wild Dog miniseries first hit the shelves, I was 15 years old and quite sheltered. I wasn't allowed to watch much television as a kid, so I found escape in books like Green Lantern and Superman. I was so naive, I didn't even know the Quad Cities was a real place. Also, there was no internet. I think Wild Dog must have excited me because it was so different from what I read, except Suicide Squad. I don't dispute that violence ran rampant in DC Comics. It even infected my precious Captain Adam with the arrival of Major Force. I suppose I just always wore blinders. You make a good point. I'm chagrined. Also, yeah, it wasn't well written, which is unfortunate. But I still think he murdered those people, terrorists or not. Man, Suicide Squad was super violent. I have to rethink my whole childhood now. To which Keith G. Baker replied, I wholeheartedly agree. The darkening of the DCU in the late 80s is what drove me to leave comics for over a decade. If I wanted killing and angst, I would have read Marvel. You know, see, that, that's just it. Like, do we... <sighs> Do we go away from comics to get too dark because they're too dark or because of how they're oh, before or because of how they're going about getting to those dark places? And are those even really two different questions? Like I don't I don't know. There's something about the dark the the, the darkness of DC in the late 80s, early 90s that breeds masterful storytelling and legendary stories that have been adapted into film and animated series and, and stuff like that that are remembered by several comics readers as classics but when you look at the broad strokes of it it's got to be only a percentage and even a small percentage of at that that became classics how much of the quote-unquote let's let's just take the bracket of dc forget marvel image all that other stuff Taking the bracket of dark DC in the late 80s and 90s, what percentage of those stories were classic? Well, since everything can't be a classic and it takes a right combination of the right creative team and the right story to become a classic, let's say, what, 10%? So that leaves 90% of dark DC comics that was just utter crap, or potentially utter crap, or at least maybe readable, but not really memorable. So, do we have a love-hate relationship with the darkness of DC Comics in the late 80s and 90s because of the quality of the classics juxtaposed against the sheer amount of, meh, imitation stuff that was trying to be those classics? I don't know. Maybe I'm getting too philosophical. I don't know. And Jay Jones says, it was a great first episode, Chad. I would have loved it even if I hadn't been a part of it. Look forward to hearing more. Maybe not so much the Wild Dog stuff, though. Well, you're a part of it, so deal with it. <laughs> now, I also got a message from someone named The Jack. He says, thanks for doing the Action Comics Weekly podcast. I remember waiting anxiously for Action Comics Weekly 601 after reading Green Lantern Corps 224 and hearing that GL would continue in Action Comics Weekly. I wish they were able to tell the GL story that they wanted to tell. Will you be covering GL specials 1 and 2? 
I believe that it ended the Action Comics Weekly GL story from what I can remember. I look forward to rereading Action Comics Weekly with you. Well, I don't want to give away too much of my future plans with this show. There are several dozen episodes... Uh, there are several dozen there are several dozen issues still left to cover and i don't want to commit to anything just yet but i will say this i will be covering more than just the ex- the i will be covering more than just the action comics weekly specific issues of the series now that could mean one extra episode or two or three i do have plans for at least one at least one, and it has to do with... I'll give a hint. It's not much of a hint if you know pretty well the history of Action Comics Weekly. It has to do with a prestige format comic that features one, two, three, four, at least four characters featured in Action Comics Weekly. Does that work for you? Do you know what I'm talking about? If you don't, better get on it. Yes, there are plans to do more than just Action Comics Weekly proper, the series. Um, it's just a matter of how much more. As of right now, I will only commit to one extra episode outside of just the regular Action Comics Weekly series. Now, on to what I'm not calling more important than what I just talked about, but something really, really awesome. I have reviews on iTunes already. Holy crap. I already have reviews for this show. That is awesome. Now, to be fair, before the two reviews I'm going to be reading to you, I did receive one review when all I had out was the trailer. And I believe this is from Ali Almedie. I don't know how to... Again, I'm horrible at name pronunciation. So if I said that wrong, I do apologize. He says, I love the, I love the trailer. I can't wait to hear more. Longtime Superman fan. And that was a five-star review before episode one was even out. I have two more reviews. The first one is from Jay Jones. Hashtag wild dog expert. <laughs> and the title of his review, five stars. Awesome. Thank you. Says, I'll never not listen. As I write this review, only the first episode of this podcast has aired. But I already know it is one of the greats. You've got a great comic series, The Action Comics Weekly. You've got great characters, Superman, Green Lantern, Dead Man, the Blackhawks, and everyone's favorite murdering vigilante, Wild Dog. You've got a great host, Chad Bokelman of the Lantern Cast. Also, a fantastic show. You've got funny, smart, insightful guests, Mark Marble, Ben Avery, Michael Bailey, Doug Zavisha, and Alan Middleton. And that's just in the first episode. All these elements converge to form the perfect storm of podcasts, the Action Comics Weekly Podcast. I, for one, will never not listen. Unless Chad does something unthinkable, like get someone other than me to talk about Wild Dog. Wild Dog forever! Hashtag J. Jones Wild Dog Expert. <laughs> Thank you for that review, Jay. I really do appreciate it. You are everywhere across the social media um, pimping out this show in one way or another, and not just because you're a part of it, and I really, really appreciate that. I also have one other review I want to get to before we close out the show. And that is from Count Druncula. And if that name sounds familiar, that's because that is from Ryan Daly himself. What? The Godfather. No, not really. I'm, I'm done hyping you, Daly. The whole first episode was a big hype for you. So that's it. You're cut off. Um, 
another five-star review, and the title of his review is You Can't Blame Me for This. Throughout the first episode of the Action Comics Weekly podcast, host Chad Bokelman tries several times to remind his listeners that the inspiration for this project came from fellow podcaster Ryan Daly. Not once does he ever mention that I was joking, that it was basically a dare. A regular index show dedicated to anthology comic with six features per issue telling stories about 20 different named characters? And you're going to book at least one different guest for every feature? That task sounded too big, too difficult to coordinate, too crazy to manage. It was preposterous. It was a preposterous suggestion. That's why you can't blame me for this podcast. And you also can't give me any credit for it, because Chad Bokelman took on the Herculean task all his own. And the result is really, really good. Chad lined up an amazingly talented group of guests for this podcast. Fans of the comics who, even if they don't particularly love the character they're talking about, can still bring a wealth of professional history, a wealth of personal history, and context for these types of adventure stories. The Action Comics Weekly podcast is an epic endeavor on the part of Chad and his guest hosts. It's also going to require commitment from the audience to buy in, follow along, and ride with the ongoing stories of Superman, Green Lantern, Deadman, Blackhawk, Black Canary, Nightwing, and Speedy, The Demon, The Panther Stranger, and more. But as I said, the show is really good. Subscribe today. Awesome. I really appreciate those kind words. All kidding aside, Ryan, I really appreciate it. I really admire what you're doing on the, on the Secret Origins podcast. I really admire what all of my guests do on their individual podcasts. Um, they're, I mean, they're, we live in a golden age of comics podcasting, guys. You can... Just in the fire and water podcasting community, not the network, but the community, there are s- several dozen comics podcasts. And I'm not even talking about my own, let alone this one or the Lantern Cast. Outside of the two that I'm a part of, there are several dozen podcasts that are out there right now that I could name off the top of my head that are worth listening to. And I'm talking religiously listening to and following along with. And it blows my mind that the guests that I have on this show even agreed to come on. It blows my mind that all I have right now is one episode out and I've already got people leaving me feedback. I obviously want more and more and more feedback, but I've already got a couple different pages of printouts to keep up with. This is the first time I've had to organize feedback in my life. What? That is insane to me. Not to mention, I've got three reviews already on iTunes for my show. And they're all five-star reviews. And I didn't bribe anybody. (laughs) Like, that is insane to me. And I don't want to keep rambling, but I do have this to say. The Fire & Water podcast community has been a great, great, great outlet and source of friendship for me. Now, I'm not saying that to say my farewells. I'm just saying that I consider this podcast a part of that community. It is not officially or in any way connected to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. But the community that has been built up around the Fire and Water Podcast that the Irredeemable Shag and Rob Kelly do is something rare and something worth celebrating. And this podcast is just one of the many... Many, many good things to spring up from the interaction 
that the hosts of and listeners of and contributors to that network and their shows that has sprung up in the past few years. There are several, several, several podcasts out there right now that sprung up directly as a result of the of the Fire and Water podcast and its community of listeners. People who met each other, shared common interests, and just formed a podcast together. This show is no different. So I'm not going to continually hype Ryan Daly and his Secret Origins podcast or the Irredeemable Shag and Rob Kelly's Fire and Water podcast. But at least for now, I need to at least acknowledge their impact in being the inspiration for a show like this and their community, which already has garnered positive results for my own podcast. And I can't thank them enough for that. Now, from now on, all bets are off. Daily, Shag, Kelly, you're on notice, guys. The hits are coming. <laughs> all right, that's enough. All right, so clearly I didn't script the end of the show, other than just making sure I read feed feedback. So if you would like to contact the show, please, 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 please do so. Uh, do it over at the Facebook page, Action Comics Weekly Podcast. Or you're welcome to leave a comment directly on the website itself at actionweeklypodcast.wordpress.com. If you can, please, 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 please review the show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. As of right now, I've got three reviews on iTunes and zero on Stitcher. I'm not sure if people are actually listening on Stitcher. Uh, I do provide the podcast available over there. I'm just not sure how many people actually stream it. But if you can, even if it's just copying and pasting, please leave a review for the show over on Stitcher as that will also help increase the podcast visibility on that side of things as well. Um, you're also welcome to contact me on Twitter, at CageGnarly. That's at C-A-G-E-N-A-R-L-E-I-G-H, Cage Gnarly, and I will get back to you as soon as possible. Thank you guys yet again for listening, and thanks to my guests one more time for appearing on this show, and I'll see you guys in two weeks. Bye. Just for one day